Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 38 of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He went to see Madame Merle on the morrow, and to his surprise, she let him off rather easily. But she made him promise that he would stop there till something should have been decided. Mr. Osmond had had higher expectations. It was very true that as he had no intention of giving his daughter a portion, such expectations were open to criticism, or even, if one would, to ridicule. But she would advise Mr. Rosier not to take that tone. If he would possess his soul in patience, he might arrive at his felicity. Mr. Osmond was not favourable to his suit, but it wouldn't be a miracle if he should gradually come round. Pansy would never defy her father, he might depend on that, so nothing was to be gained by precipitation. Mr. Osmond needed to accustom his mind to an offer of a sort that he had not hitherto entertained, and this result must come of itself. It was useless to try to force it. Rosier remarked that his own situation would be in the meantime the most uncomfortable in the world and Madame Merle assured him that she felt for him. But, as she justly declared, one couldn't have everything one wanted. She had learned that lesson for herself. There would be no use in his writing to Gilbert Osmond, who had charged her to tell him as much. He wished the matter dropped for a few weeks, and would himself write when he should have anything to communicate that might please Mr. Rosier to hear. "'He doesn't like your having spoken to Pansy. Ah, oh, he doesn't like it at all.' said Madame Merle. I'm perfectly willing to give him a chance to tell me so. If you do, he'll tell you more than you care to hear. Go to the house for the next month as little as possible, and leave the rest to me. As little as possible? Who's to measure the possibility? Let me measure it. Go on Thursday evenings with the rest of the world, but don't go at all at odd times, and don't fret about Pansy. I'll see that she understands everything. She's a calm little nature. She'll take it quietly. Edward Rosier fretted about Pansy a good deal, but he did as he was advised, and awaited another Thursday evening before returning to Palazzo Rocanera. There had been a party at dinner, so that though he went early, the company was already tolerably numerous. Osmond, as usual, was in the first room near the fire, staring straight at the door, so that, not to be distinctly uncivil, Rosier had to go and speak to him. "'I'm glad that you can take a hint,' Pansy's father said, slightly closing his keen, conscious eyes. "'I take no hints, but I took a message, as I supposed it to be.' "'You took it. Where did you take it?' It seemed to poor Rosier he was being insulted, and he waited a moment, asking himself how much a true lover ought to submit to. "'Madame Merle gave me, as I understand it, a message from you, to the effect that you declined to give me the opportunity that I desire, the opportunity to explain my wishes to you.' And he flattered himself he spoke rather sternly. "'I don't see what Madame Merle has to do with it. Why did you apply to Madame Merle?' "'I asked her for an opinion, for nothing more. 
I did so because she had seemed to me to know you very well. She doesn't know me so well as she thinks, said Osmond. I'm sorry for that, because she has given me some little ground for hope. Osmond stared into the fire a moment. I set a great price on my daughter. You can't set a higher one than I do. Don't I prove it by wishing to marry her? I wish to marry her very well, Osmond went on with a dry impertinence, which, in another mood, poor Rosier would have admired. Of course I pretend she'd marry well in marrying me. She couldn't marry a man who loves her more, or whom, I may venture to add, she loves more. I'm not bound to accept your theories as to whom my daughter loves. And Osmond looked up with a quick, cold smile. I'm not theorizing. Your daughter has spoken. Not to me, Osmond continued, now bending forward a little and dropping his eyes to his boot-toes. I have her promise, sir, cried Rosier, with the sharpness of exasperation. As their voices had been pitched very low before, such a note attracted some attention from the company. Osmond waited till this little movement had subsided, then he said, all undisturbed, "'I think she has no recollection of having given it.' They had been standing with their faces to the fire, and after he had uttered these last words, the master of the house turned round again to the room. Before Rosier had time to reply, he perceived that a gentleman, a stranger, had just come in, unannounced, according to the Roman custom, and was about to present himself to his host. The latter smiled blandly, but somewhat blankly. The visitor had a handsome face and a large, fair beard, and was evidently an Englishman. "'You apparently don't recognize me,' he said, with a smile that expressed more than Osmond's. "'Ah, yes, now I do. I expected so little to see you.' Rosier departed, and went in direct pursuit of Pansy. He sought her, as usual, in the neighbouring room, but he again encountered Mrs. Osmond in his path. He gave his hostess no greeting. He was too righteously indignant, but said to her crudely, "'Your husband's awfully cold-blooded.' She gave the same mystical smile he had noticed before. "'You can't expect everyone to be as hot as yourself.' "'I don't pretend to be cold, but I'm cool. What has he been doing to his daughter?' "'I've no idea.' "'Don't you take any interest?' Rosier demanded with his sense that she too was irritating. For a moment she answered nothing. Then, no, she said abruptly, and with a quickened light in her eyes, which directly contradicted the word. Pardon me if I don't believe that. Where's Miss Osmond? In the corner making tea. Please leave her there. Rosier instantly discovered his friend, who had been hidden by intervening groups. He watched her, but her own attention was entirely given to her occupation. "'What on earth has he done to her?' he asked again, imploringly. "'He declares to me she has given me up.' "'She has not given you up,' Isabel said in a low tone, and without looking at him. "'Ah, oh, thank you for that. Now I'll leave her alone as long as you think proper.' He had hardly spoken when he saw her change colour, and became aware that Osmond was coming toward her, accompanied by the gentleman who had just entered. He judged the latter, in spite of the advantage of good looks and evident social experience, a little embarrassed. "'Isabel,' said her husband, "'I bring you an old friend.' Mrs. Osmond's face, though it wore a smile, was like her old friend's not perfectly confident. 
"'I'm very happy to see Lord Warburton,' she said. Rosier turned away, and now that his talk with her had been interrupted, felt absolved from the little pledge he had just taken. He had a quick impression that Mrs. Osmond wouldn't notice what he did. Isabel, in fact, to do him justice, for some time quite ceased to observe him. She had been startled. She hardly knew if she felt a pleasure or a pain. Lord Warburton, however, now that he was face to face with her, was plainly quite sure of his own sense of the matter, though his grey eyes had still their fine original property of keeping recognition and attestation strictly sincere. He was heavier than of yore, and looked older. He stood there very solidly and sensibly. "'I suppose you didn't expect to see me,' he said. "'I've but just arrived. Literally I only got here this evening. You see I've lost no time in coming to pay you my respects. I knew you were at home on Thursdays.' "'You see the fame of your Thursdays has spread to England,' Osmond remarked to his wife. "'It's very kind of Lord Warburton to come so soon. We're greatly flattered,' Isabel said. "'Ah, well, it's better than stopping in one of those horrible inns.' Osmond went on. "'The hotel seems very good. I think it's the same at which I saw you four years since. You know it was here in Rome that we first met. It's a long time ago. Do you remember where I bade you good-bye?' his lordship asked of his hostess. "'It was in the capital, in the first room.' "'I remember that myself,' said Osmond. "'I was there at the time.' "'Yes, I remember you there. I was very sorry to leave Rome. So sorry that, somehow or other, it became almost a dismal memory, and I've never cared to come back till to-day. But I knew you were living here, her old friend went on to Isabel, and I assure you I've often thought of you. It must be a charming place to live in, he added with a look round him at her established home, in which she might have caught the dim ghost of his old ruefulness. We should have been glad to see you at any time, Osmond observed with propriety. Thank you very much. I haven't been out of England since then. Till a month ago I really supposed my travels were over. "'I've heard of you from time to time,' said Isabel, who had already with her rare capacity for such inward feats taken the measure of what meeting him again meant for her. "'I hope you've had no harm. My life has been a remarkably complete blank.' "'Like the good reigns in history,' Osmond suggested. He appeared to think his duties as a host now terminated, he had performed them so conscientiously. Nothing could have been more adequate, more nicely measured, than his courtesy to his wife's old friend. It was punctilious, it was explicit, it was everything but natural. A deficiency which Lord Warburton, who himself had on the whole a good deal of nature, may be supposed to have perceived. "'I'll leave you and Mrs. Osmond together,' he added. "'You have reminiscences into which I don't enter.' "'I'm afraid you lose a good deal,' Lord Warburton called after him, as he moved away, in a tone which perhaps betrayed overmuch an appreciation of his generosity. Then the visitor turned on Isabel the deeper, the deepest consciousness of his look, which gradually became more serious. "'I'm really very glad to see you.' "'It's very pleasant. You're very kind.' "'Do you know that you've changed, a little?' She just hesitated. "'Yes.' a good deal. I don't mean for the worse, of course. And yet, how can I say for the better? I think I shall have no scruple in saying that to you, she bravely returned. Ah, well, for me, 
It's a long time. It would be a pity there shouldn't be something to show for it. They sat down and she asked him about his sisters, with other enquiries of a somewhat perfunctory kind. He answered her questions as if they interested him, and in a few moments she saw, or believed she saw, that he would press with less of his whole weight than of yore. Time had breathed upon his heart, and without chilling it, given it a relieved sense of having taken the air. Isabel felt her usual esteem for time rise at a bound. Her friend's manner was certainly that of a contented man, one who would rather like people, or like her at least, to know him for such. "'There's something I must tell you without more delay,' he resumed. "'I've brought Ralph Touchett with me.' "'Brought him with you?' Isabel's surprise was great. "'He's at the hotel. He was too tired to come out and has gone to bed.' "'I'll go to see him,' she immediately said. "'That's exactly what I hoped you'd do. "'I had an idea you hadn't seen much of him since your marriage, "'that in fact your relations were, uh, a little more formal. "'That's why I hesitated, like an awkward Briton.' "'I'm as fond of Ralph as ever,' Isabel answered. "'But why has he come to Rome?' "'The declaration was very gentle, the question a little sharp.' "'because he's very far gone, Mrs. Osmond.' "'Rome, then, is no place for him. "'I heard from him that he determined to give up his custom of wintering abroad, "'and to remain in England, indoors, in what he called an artificial climate.' "'Poor fellow. He doesn't succeed with the artificial. "'I went to see him three weeks ago at Garden Court, and found him thoroughly ill. "'He's been getting worse every year, and now he has no strength left. "'He smokes no more cigarettes.' He had got up an artificial climate, indeed. The house was as hot as Calcutta. Nevertheless, he had suddenly taken it into his head to start for Sicily. I didn't believe in it. Neither did the doctors, nor any of his friends. His mother, as I suppose you know, is in America, so there was no one to prevent him. He stuck to his idea that it would be the saving of him to spend the winter at Catania. He said he could take servants and furniture, could make himself comfortable— but in point of fact he hasn't brought anything. I wanted him at least to go by sea to save fatigue, but he said he hated the sea and wished to stop at Rome. After that, though I thought it was all rubbish, I made up my mind to come with him. I am acting as—what do you call it in America?—as a kind of moderator. Poor Ralph's very moderate now. We left England a fortnight ago, and he has been very bad on the way. He can't keep warm, and the further south we come the more he feels the cold. He has got rather a good man, but I'm afraid he's beyond human help. I wanted him to take with him some clever fellow, I mean some sharp young doctor, but he wouldn't hear of it. If you don't mind my saying so, I think it was a most extraordinary time for Mrs. Touchett to decide on going to America. Isabel had listened eagerly. Her face was full of pain and wonder. My aunt does that at fixed periods, and lets nothing turn her aside. When the date comes round, she starts. I think she'd have started if Ralph had been dying. I sometimes think he is dying, Lord Warburton said. Isabel sprang up. I'll go to him then now. He checked her. He was a little disconcerted at the quick effect of his words. I don't mean I thought so tonight. On the contrary, today in the train he seemed particularly well. The idea of our reaching Rome—he's very fond of Rome, you know—gave him strength. 
An hour ago, when I bade him good-night, he told me he was very tired but very happy. Go to him in the morning, that's all I mean. I didn't tell him I was coming here. I didn't decide to till after we had separated. Then I remembered he had told me you had an evening, and that it was this very Thursday. It occurred to me to come in and tell you he's here, and to let you know you had perhaps better not wait for him to call. I think he said he hadn't written to you. There was no need of Isabel's declaring that she would act upon Lord Warburton's information. She looked, as she sat there, like a winged creature held back. "'Let alone that I wanted to see you for myself,' her visitor gallantly added. "'I don't understand Ralph's plan. It seems to me very wild,' she said. "'I was glad to think of him between those thick walls at Garden Court.' "'He was completely alone there. The thick walls were his only company.' "'You went to see him. You've been extremely kind.' "'Oh, dear, I had nothing to do,' said Lord Warburton. "'We hear, on the contrary, that you're doing great things. Everyone speaks of you as a great statesman, and I'm perpetually seeing your name in the Times, which, by the way, doesn't appear to hold it in reverence. You're apparently as wild a radical as ever.' "'I don't feel nearly so wild. You know the world has come round to me.' Touchett and I have kept up a sort of parliamentary debate all the way from London. I tell him he's the last of the Tories, and he calls me the King of the Goths. Says I have, down to the details of my personal appearance, every sign of the brute. So you see, there's life in him yet. Isabel had many questions to ask about Ralph, but she abstained from asking them all. She would see for herself on the morrow. She perceived that after a little Lord Warburton would tire of that subject. He had a conception of other possible topics. She was more and more able to say to herself that he had recovered, and what is more to the point, she was able to say it without bitterness. He had been for her, of old, such an image of urgency, of insistence, of something to be resisted and reasoned with, that his reappearance at first menaced her with a new trouble. But she was now reassured. She could see he only wished to live with her on good terms, that she was to understand he had forgiven her, and was incapable of the bad taste of making pointed allusions. This was not a form of revenge, of course. She had no suspicion of his wishing to punish her by an exhibition of disillusionment. She did him the justice to believe it had simply occurred to him that she would now take a good-natured interest in knowing he was resigned. It was the resignation of a healthy, manly nature, in which sentimental wounds could never fester. British politics had cured him. She had known they would. She gave an envious thought to the happier lot of men, who were always free to plunge into the healing waters of action. Lord Warburton, of course, spoke of the past, but he spoke of it without implications. He even went so far as to allude to their former meeting in Rome as a very jolly time. And he told her he had been immensely interested in hearing of her marriage, and that it was a great pleasure for him to make Mr. Osmond's acquaintance, since he could hardly be said to have made it on the other occasion. He had not written to her at the time of that passage in her history, but he didn't apologize to her for this. The only thing he implied was that they were old friends, intimate friends. It was very much as an intimate friend that he said to her, suddenly, after a short pause, which he had occupied in smiling, as he looked about him, like a person amused at a provincial entertainment by some innocent game of guesses. "'Well, now, I suppose you're very happy and all that sort of thing?' Isabel answered with a quick laugh. 
The tone of his remark struck her as almost the accent of comedy. "'Do you suppose if I were not, I'd tell you?' "'Well, I don't know. I don't see why not.' "'I do, then. Fortunately, however, I'm very happy.' "'You've got an awfully good house.' "'Yes, it's very pleasant. But that's not my merit. It's my husband's.' "'You mean he has arranged it?' "'Yes. It was nothing when we came. He must be very clever.' "'He has a genius for upholstery,' said Isabel. "'There's a great rage for that sort of thing now, but you must have a taste of your own.' "'I enjoy things when they're done, but I've no ideas. I never can propose anything.' "'Do you mean you accept what others propose?' "'Very willingly, for the most part.' "'That's a good thing to know. I shall propose to you something.' "'It will be very kind.' I must say, however, that I've in a few small ways a certain initiative. I should like, for instance, to introduce you to some of these people. Oh, please don't. I prefer sitting here. Unless it be to that young lady in the blue dress. She has a charming face. The one talking to the rosy young man? That's my husband's daughter. Lucky man, your husband. What a dear little maid. You must make her acquaintance. In a moment, with pleasure. I like looking at her from here. He ceased to look at her, however, very soon. His eyes constantly reverted to Mrs. Osmond. "'Do you know I was wrong just now in saying you had changed?' He presently went on. "'You seem to me, after all, very much the same.' "'And yet I find it a great change to be married,' said Isabel, with mild gaiety. "'It affects most people more than it has affected you. You see I haven't gone in for that.' "'It rather surprises me.' "'You ought to understand it, Mrs. Osmond. "'But I do want to marry,' he added more simply. "'It ought to be very easy,' Isabel said, rising, "'after which she reflected, with a pang perhaps too visible, "'that she was hardly the person to say this. "'It was perhaps because Lord Warburton divined the pang "'that he generously forbore to call her attention to her "'not having contributed then to the facility.' Edward Rosier had meanwhile seated himself on an ottoman beside Pansy's tea-table. He pretended at first to talk to her about trifles, and she asked him who was the new gentleman conversing with her stepmother. "'He's an English lord,' said Rosier. "'I don't know more.' "'I wonder if he'll have some tea. The English are so fond of tea.' "'Never mind that. I've something particular to say to you.' "'Don't speak so loud. Everyone will hear,' said Pansy. They won't hear if you continue to look that way, as if your only thought in life was the wish the kettle would boil. It has just been filled. The servants never know. And she sighed with the weight of her responsibility. Do you know what your father said to me just now? That you didn't mean what you said a week ago? I don't mean everything, I say. How can a young girl do that? But I mean what I say to you. He told me you had forgotten me. Oh, no. "'I don't forget,' said Pansy, showing her pretty teeth in a fixed smile. "'Then everything's just the very same?' "'Oh, no, not the very same. Papa has been terribly severe.' "'What has he done to you?' "'He asked me what you had done to me, and I told him everything. Then he forbade me to marry you.' "'You needn't mind that.' "'Oh, yes, I must indeed. I can't disobey Papa.' "'Not for one who loves you as I do?' and whom you pretend to love?' She raised the lid of the teapot, gazing into the vessel for a moment, 
Then she dropped six words into its aromatic depths. I love you just as much. What good will that do me? Ah, said Pansy, raising her sweet, vague eyes. I don't know that. You disappoint me, groaned poor Rosier. She was silent a little. She handed a teacup to a servant. Please don't talk any more. Is this to be all my satisfaction? Papa said I was not to talk with you. Do you sacrifice me like that? Ah, oh, it's too much. I wish you'd wait a little, said the girl in a voice just distinct enough to betray a quaver. Of course I'll wait if you'll give me hope, but you take my life away. I'll not give you up. Oh, no, Pansy went on. He'll try and make you marry someone else. I'll never do that. What then are we to wait for? She hesitated again. I'll speak to Mrs. Osmond, and she'll help us. It was in this manner that she for the most part designated her stepmother. She won't help us much. She's afraid. Afraid of what? Of your father, I suppose. Pansy shook her little head. She's not afraid of anyone. We must have patience. Oh, that's an awful word, Rosier groaned. He was deeply disconcerted. Oblivious of the customs of good society, he dropped his head into his hands, and supporting it with a melancholy grace, sat staring at the carpet. Presently he became aware of a good deal of movement about him, and as he looked up, saw Pansy making a curtsy—it was still her little curtsy of the convent—to the English lord whom Mrs. Osmond had introduced. End of chapter 38 Chapter Thirty Nine of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It will probably not surprise the reflective reader that Ralph Touchett should have seen less of his cousin since her marriage than he had done before that event, an event of which he took such a view as could hardly prove a confirmation of intimacy. He had uttered his thought, as we know, and after this had held his peace. Isabel not having invited him to resume a discussion which marked an era in their relations. That discussion had made a difference, the difference he feared rather than the one he hoped. It had not chilled the girl's zeal in carrying out her engagement, but it had come dangerously near to spoiling a friendship. No reference was ever again made between them to Ralph's opinion of Gilbert Osmond, and by surrounding this topic with a sacred silence, they managed to preserve a semblance of reciprocal frankness. But there was a difference, as Ralph often said to himself, there was a difference. She had not forgiven him, she never would forgive him, that was all he had gained. She thought she had forgiven him, she believed she didn't care, and as she was both very generous and very proud, these convictions represented a certain reality. But whether or no the event should justify him, he would virtually have done her a wrong, and the wrong was of the sort that women remember best. As Osmond's wife, she could never again be his friend. If, in this character, she should enjoy the felicity she expected, she would have nothing but contempt for the man who had attempted, in advance, to undermine a blessing so dear. And if, on the other hand, his warning should be justified, the vow she had taken that he should never know it would lay upon her spirit such a burden as to make her hate him. So dismal had been, 
during the year that followed his cousin's marriage, Ralph's prevision of the future. And if his meditations appear morbid, we must remember he was not in the bloom of health. He consoled himself as he might by behaving, as he deemed, beautifully, and was present at the ceremony by which Isabel was united to Mr. Osmond, and which was performed in Florence in the month of June. He learned from his mother that Isabel at first had thought of celebrating her nuptials in her native land, but that as simplicity was what she chiefly desired to secure, she had finally decided, in spite of Osmond's professed willingness to make a journey of any length, that this characteristic would be best embodied in their being married by the nearest clergyman in the shortest time. The thing was done, therefore, at the little American chapel, on a very hot day, in the presence only of Mrs. Touchett and her son, of Pansy Osmond and the Countess Gemini. That severity in the proceedings of which I just spoke was in part the result of the absence of two persons who might have been looked for on the occasion, and who would have lent it a certain richness. Madame Merle had been invited, but Madame Merle, who was unable to leave Rome, had written a gracious letter of excuses. Henrietta Stackpole had not been invited, as her departure from America, announced to Isabel by Mr. Goodwood, was in fact frustrated by the duties of her profession. But she had sent a letter, less gracious than Madame Merle's, intimating that, had she been able to cross the Atlantic, she would have been present not only as a witness, but as a critic. Her return to Europe had taken place somewhat later, and she had effected a meeting with Isabel in the autumn, in Paris, when she had indulged, perhaps a trifle too freely, her critical genius. Poor Osmond, who was chiefly the subject of it, had protested so sharply that Henrietta was obliged to declare to Isabel that she had taken a step which put a barrier between them. "'It isn't in the least that you've married. It is that you have married him,' she had deemed it her duty to remark, agreeing, it will be seen, much more with Ralph Touchett than she suspected, though she had few of his hesitations and compunctions. Henrietta's second visit to Europe, however, was not apparently to have been made in vain, for just at the moment when Osmond had declared to Isabel that he really must object to that newspaper woman, and Isabel had answered that it seemed to her he took Henrietta too hard, the good Mr. Bantling had appeared upon the scene, and proposed that they should take a run down to Spain. Henrietta's letters from Spain had proved the most acceptable she had yet published, and there had been one in especial, dated from the Alhambra, and entitled Moors and Moonlight, which generally passed for her masterpiece. Isabel had been secretly disappointed at her husband's not seeing his way simply to take the poor girl for funny. She even wondered if his sense of fun, or of the funny, which would be his sense of humour, wouldn't it, were by chance defective. Of course she herself looked at the matter as a person whose present happiness had nothing to grudge to Henrietta's violated conscience. Osmond had thought their alliance a kind of monstrosity. He couldn't imagine what they had in common. For him, Mr. Bantling's fellow-tourist was simply the most vulgar of women, and he had also pronounced her the most abandoned. Against this latter clause of the verdict, Isabel had appealed with an ardour that had made him wonder afresh at the oddity of some of his wife's tastes. Isabel could explain it only by saying that she liked to know people who were as different as possible from herself. "'Why, then, don't you make the acquaintance of your washerwoman?' Osmond had inquired. To which Isabel had answered that she was afraid her washerwoman wouldn't care for her. Now Henrietta cared so much. Ralph had seen nothing of her for the greater part of the two years that had followed her marriage. 
the winter that formed the beginning of her residence in Rome, he had spent again at San Remo, where he had been joined in the spring by his mother, who afterwards had gone with him to England to see what they were doing at the bank, an operation she couldn't induce him to perform. Ralph had taken a lease of his house at San Remo, a small villa which he had occupied still another winter, but late in the month of April of this second year he had come down to Rome. It was the first time since her marriage that he had stood face to face with Isabel. His desire to see her again was then of the keenest. She had written to him from time to time, but her letters told him nothing he wanted to know. He had asked his mother what she was making of her life, and his mother had simply answered that she supposed she was making the best of it. Mrs. Touchett had not the imagination that communes with the unseen, and she now pretended to know intimacy with her niece, whom she rarely encountered. This young woman appeared to be living in a sufficiently honourable way, but Mrs. Touchett still remained of the opinion that her marriage had been a shabby affair. It had given her no pleasure to think of Isabel's establishment, which she was sure was a very lame business. From time to time in Florence she rubbed against the Countess Gemini, doing her best always to minimise the contact, and the Countess reminded her of Osmond, who made her think of Isabel. The Countess was less talked of in these days, but Mrs. Touchett augured no good of that. It only proved how she had been talked of before. There was a more direct suggestion of Isabel in the person of Madame Merle, but Madame Merle's relations with Mrs. Touchett had undergone a perceptible change. Isabel's aunt had told her, without circumlocution, that she had played too ingenious a part, and Madame Merle, who never quarrelled with any one, who appeared to think no one worth it, and who had performed the miracle of living, more or less, for several years with Mrs. Touchett and showing no symptom of irritation, Madame Merle now took a very high tone, and declared that this was an accusation from which she couldn't stoop to defend herself. She added, however, without stooping, that her behaviour had been only too simple, that she had believed only what she saw, that she saw Isabel was not eager to marry, and Osmond not eager to please. His repeated visits had been nothing. He was boring himself to death on his hilltop, and he came merely for amusement. Isabel had kept her sentiments to herself, and her journey to Greece and Egypt had effectually thrown dust in her companion's eyes. Madame Merle accepted the event. She was unprepared to think of it as a scandal, but that she had played any part in it, double or single, was an imputation against which she proudly protested. It was doubtless in consequence of Mrs. Touchett's attitude, and of the injury it offered to habits consecrated by many charming seasons, that Madame Merle had, after this, chosen to pass many months in England, where her credit was quite unimpaired. Mrs. Touchett had done her a wrong. There are some things that can't be forgiven. But Madame Merle suffered in silence. There was always something exquisite in her dignity. Ralph, as I say, had wished to see for himself, but while engaged in this pursuit he had yet felt afresh what a fool he had been to put the girl on her guard. He had played the wrong card, and now he had lost the game. He should see nothing, he should learn nothing. For him she would always wear a mask. His true line would have been to profess delight in her union, so that later, when, as Ralph phrased it, the bottom should fall out of it, she might have the pleasure of saying to him that he had been a goose. He would gladly have consented to pass for a goose in order to know Isabel's real situation. At present, however, she neither taunted him with his fallacies nor pretended that her own confidence was justified. If she wore a mask, it completely covered her face. 
there was something fixed and mechanical in the serenity painted on it this was not an expression ralph said it was a representation it was even an advertisement she had lost her child that was a sorrow but it was a sorrow she scarcely spoke of there was more to say about it than she could say to ralph it belonged to the past moreover it had occurred six months before and she had already laid aside the tokens of mourning she appeared to be leading the life of the world ralph heard her spoken of as having a charming position he observed that she produced the impression of being peculiarly enviable that it was supposed among many people to be a privilege even to know her her house was not open to every one and she had an evening in the week to which people were not invited as a matter of course she lived with a certain magnificence but you needed to be a member of her circle to perceive it for there was nothing to gape at nothing to criticize nothing even to admire in the daily proceedings of mr and mrs osmond ralph in all this recognized the hand of the master for he knew that isabel had no faculty for producing studied impressions she struck him as having a great love of movement of gaiety of late hours of long rides of fatigue an eagerness to be entertained to be interested even to be bored to make acquaintances to see people who were talked about to explore the neighbourhood of rome to enter into relation with certain of the mustiest relics of its old society in all this there was much less discrimination than in that desire for comprehensiveness of development on which he had been used to exercise his wit there was a kind of violence in some of her impulses of crudity in some of her experiments which took him by surprise it seemed to him that she even spoke faster moved faster breathed faster than before her marriage certainly she had fallen into exaggerations she who used to care so much for the pure truth and whereas of old she had a great delight in good-humoured argument in intellectual play she never looked so charming as when in the genial heat of discussion she received a crushing blow full in the face and brushed it away as a feather she appeared now to think there was nothing worth people's either differing about or agreeing upon of old she had been curious and now she was indifferent and yet in spite of her indifference her activity was greater than ever slender still but lovelier than before she had gained no great maturity of aspect yet there was an amplitude and a brilliancy in her personal arrangements that gave a touch of insolence to her beauty poor human-hearted isabel what perversity had bitten her her light step drew a mass of drapery behind it her intelligent head sustained a majesty of ornament the free keen girl had become quite another person what he saw was the fine lady who was supposed to represent something what did isabel represent ralph asked himself and he could only answer by saying that she represented gilbert osmond good heavens what a function he then woefully exclaimed he was lost in wonder at the mystery of things he recognized osmond as i say he recognized him at every turn he saw how he kept all things within limits how he adjusted regulated animated their manner of life osmond was in his element at last he had material to work with he always had an eye to effect and his effects were deeply calculated they were produced by no vulgar means but the motive interior with a sort of invidious sanctity to tantalize society with a sense of exclusion to make people believe his house was different from every other 
to impart to the face that he presented to the world a cold originality. This was the ingenious effort of the personage to whom Isabel had attributed a superior morality. "'He works with superior material,' Ralph said to himself. "'It's rich abundance compared with his former resources.' Ralph was a clever man, but Ralph had never, to his own sense, been so clever as when he observed in petto that under the guise of caring only for intrinsic values, Osmond lived exclusively for the world. Far from being its master as he pretended to be, he was its very humble servant, and the degree of its attention was his only measure of success. He lived with his eye on it from morning till night, and the world was so stupid it never suspected the trick. Everything he did was pose, pose so subtly considered that if one were not on the lookout one mistook it for impulse. Ralph had never met a man who lived so much in the land of consideration. His tastes, his studies, his accomplishments, his collections were all for a purpose. His life on his hilltop at Florence had been the conscious attitude of years. His solitude, his ennui, his love for his daughter, his good manners, his bad manners, were so many features of a mental image constantly present to him as a model of impertinence and mystification. His ambition was not to please the world, but to please himself by exciting the world's curiosity and then declining to satisfy it. It had made him feel great ever to play the world a trick. The thing he had done in his life most directly to please himself was his marrying Miss Archer, though in this case, indeed, the gullible world was in a manner embodied in poor Isabel, who had been mystified to the top of her bent. Ralph, of course, found a fitness in being consistent. He had embraced a creed, and as he had suffered for it, he could not in honour forsake it. I give this little sketch of its articles for what they may at the time have been worth. It was certain that he was very skilful in fitting the facts to his theory, even the fact that during the month he spent in Rome at this period, the husband of the woman he loved appeared to regard him not in the least as an enemy. For Gilbert Osmond, Ralph had not now that importance. It was not that he had the importance of a friend, it was rather that he had none at all. He was Isabel's cousin, and he was rather unpleasantly ill. It was on this basis that Osmond treated with him. He made the proper enquiries, asked about his health, about Mrs. Touchett, about his opinion of winter climates, whether he were comfortable at his hotel. He addressed him, on the few occasions of their meeting, not a word that was not necessary. But his manner had always the urbanity proper to conscious success in the presence of conscious failure. For all this, Ralph had had, toward the end, a sharp inward vision of Osmond's making it of small ease to his wife that she should continue to receive Mr. Touchett. He was not jealous, he had not that excuse, no one could be jealous of Ralph, but he made Isabel pay for her old-time kindness, of which so much was still left, and as Ralph had no idea of her paying too much, so when his suspicion had become sharp he had taken himself off. In doing so he had deprived Isabel of a very interesting occupation. She had been constantly wondering what fine principle was keeping him alive. She had decided that it was his love of conversation. His conversation had been better than ever. He had given up walking. He was no longer a humorous stroller. He sat all day in a chair, almost any chair would serve, 
and was so dependent on what you would do for him that had not his talk been highly contemplative you might have thought he was blind the reader already knows more about him than isabel was ever to know and the reader may therefore be given the key to the mystery what kept ralph alive was simply the fact that he had not yet seen enough of the person in the world in whom he was most interested he was not yet satisfied there was more to come he couldn't make up his mind to lose that he wanted to see what she would make of her husband or what her husband would make of her this was only the first act of the drama and he was determined to sit out the performance his determination had held good it had kept him going some eighteen months more till the time of his return to rome with lord warburton it had given him indeed such an air of intending to live indefinitely that mrs touchett though more accessible to confusions of thought in the matter of this strange unremunerative and unremunerated son of hers than she had ever been before had as we have learned not scrupled to embark for a distant land if ralph had been kept alive by suspense it was with a good deal of the same emotion the excitement of wondering in what state she should find him that isabel mounted to his apartment the day after lord warburton had notified her of his arrival in rome she spent an hour with him it was the first of several visits gilbert osmond called on him punctually and on their sending their carriage for him ralph came more than once to palazzo rocanera a fortnight elapsed at the end of which ralph announced to lord warburton that he thought after all he wouldn't go to sicily the two men had been dining together after a day spent by the latter in ranging about the campagna they had left the table and warburton before the chimney was lighting a cigar which he instantly removed from his lips won't go to sicily where then will you go well i guess i won't go anywhere said ralph from the sofa all shamelessly do you mean you'll return to england oh dear no i'll stay in rome rome won't do for you rome's not warm enough it will have to do i'll make it do see how well i've been lord warburton looked at him a while puffing a cigar and as if trying to see it you've been better than you were on the journey certainly i wonder how you lived through that but i don't understand your condition i recommend you to try sicily i can't try said poor ralph i've done trying i can't move further i can't face that journey fancy me between scylla and charybdis i don't want to die on the sicilian plains to be snatched away like proserpine in the same locality to the plutonian shades what the deuce then did you come for his lordship inquired because the idea took me i see it won't do it really doesn't matter where i am now i've exhausted all remedies i've swallowed all climates as i'm here i'll stay i haven't a single cousin in sicily much less a married one your cousin's certainly an inducement but what does the doctor say i haven't asked him and i don't care a fig if i die here mrs osmond will bury me but i shall not die here i hope not lord warburton continued to smoke reflectively well i must say he resumed for myself i am very glad you don't insist on sicily i had a horror of that journey ah but for you it needn't have mattered i had no idea of dragging you in my train i certainly didn't mean to let you go alone 
"'My dear Warburton, I never expected you to come further than this,' Ralph cried. "'I should have gone with you and seen you settled,' said Lord Warburton. "'You're a very good Christian. You're a very kind man. "'Then I should have come back here. "'And then you'd have gone to England. "'No, no, I should have stayed.' "'Well,' said Ralph, "'if that's what we are both up to, "'I don't see where Sicily comes in.' His companion was silent. He sat staring at the fire. At last, looking up, "'I say, tell me this,' he broke out. "'Did you really mean to go to Sicily when we started?' "'Ah, vous m'en demandez trop. Let me put a question first. Did you come with me quite platonically?' "'I don't know what you mean by that. I wanted to come abroad.' "'I suspect we've each been playing our little game.' speak for yourself i made no secret whatever of my desiring to be here a while yes i remember you said you wished to see the minister of foreign affairs i've seen him three times he's very amusing i think you've forgotten what you came for said ralph perhaps i have his companion answered rather gravely these two were gentlemen of a race which is not distinguished by the absence of reserve and they had travelled together from London to Rome without an allusion to matters that were uppermost in the mind of each. There was an old subject they had once discussed, but it had lost its recognised place in their attention, and even after their arrival in Rome, where many things led back to it, they had kept the same half-diffident, half-confident silence. "'I recommend you to get the doctor's consent all the same,' Lord Warburton went on abruptly after an interval. The doctor's consent will spoil it. I never have it when I can help it. "'What, then, does Mrs. Osmond think?' Ralph's friend demanded. "'I've not told her. She'll probably say that Rome's too cold, and even offer to go with me to Catania. She's capable of that. "'In your place I should like it. Her husband won't like it. Ah, well, I can fancy that.' though it seems to me you're not bound to mind his likings they're his affair i don't want to make any more trouble between them said ralph is there so much already there's complete preparation for it her going off with me would make the explosion osmond isn't fond of his wife's cousin then of course he'd make a row but won't he make a row if you stop here that's what i want to see he made one the last time I was in Rome, and then I thought it my duty to disappear. Now I think it's my duty to stop and defend her. My dear Touchett, your defensive powers! Lord Warburton began with a smile. But he saw something in his companion's face that checked him. Your duty in these premises seems to me rather a nice question, he observed instead. Ralph, for a short time, answered nothing. "'It's true that my defensive powers are small,' he returned at last. "'But as my aggressive ones are still smaller, Osmond may, after all, not think me worth his gunpowder. "'At any rate,' he added, "'there are things I'm curious to see.' "'You're sacrificing your health to your curiosity, then?' "'I'm not much interested in my health, and I'm deeply interested in Mrs. Osmond.' "'So am I, but not as I once was.' Lord Warburton added quickly. This was one of the allusions he had not hitherto found occasion to make. 
Does she strike you as very happy? Ralph inquired, emboldened by this confidence. Well, I don't know. I've hardly thought. She told me the other night she was happy. Ah, she told you, of course, Ralph exclaimed, smiling. I don't know that. It seems to me I was rather the sort of person she might have complained to. Complained? She'll never complain. She has done it, what she has done, and she knows it. She'll complain to you least of all. She's very careful. She needn't be. I don't mean to make love to her again. I'm delighted to hear it. There can be no doubt at least of your duty. Ah, no, said Lord Warburton gravely. None. Permit me to ask, Ralph went on, whether it's to bring out the fact that you don't mean to make love to her that you're so very civil to the little girl. Lord Warburton gave a slight start. He got up and stood before the fire, looking at it hard. Does that strike you as very ridiculous? Ridiculous? Not in the least, if you really like her. I think her a delightful little person. I don't know when a girl of that age has pleased me more. She's a charming creature. Ah, she at least is genuine. Of course there's the difference in our ages. More than twenty years. My dear Warburton, said Ralph, are you serious? Perfectly serious, as far as I've got. I'm very glad. And heaven help us, cried Ralph. How cheered up old Osmond will be. His companion frowned. I say, don't spoil it. I shouldn't propose for his daughter to please him. He'll have the perversity to be pleased all the same. He's not so fond of me as that, said his lordship. As that? My dear Warburton, the drawback of your position is that people needn't be fond of you at all to wish to be connected with you. Now with me in such a case, I should have the happy confidence that they loved me. Lord Warburton seemed scarcely in the mood for doing justice to general axioms. He was thinking of a special case. Do you judge she'll be pleased? The girl herself? Delighted, surely. No, no. I mean Mrs. Osmond. Ralph looked at him a moment. My dear fellow, what has she to do with it? Whatever she chooses. She's very fond of Pansy. Very true. Very true. And Ralph slowly got up. It's an interesting question, how far her fondness for Pansy will carry her. He stood there a moment with his hands in his pockets, and rather a clouded brow. I hope you know that you're very, very sure. The deuce! he broke off. I don't know how to say it. Yes, you do. You know how to say everything. Well, it's awkward. I hope you're sure that among Miss Osmond's merits her being a... so near her stepmother isn't a leading one. Good heavens, touch it! cried Lord Warburton angrily. For what do you take me? End of chapter 39 Chapter 40 Of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Isabel had not seen much of Madame Merle since her marriage, this lady having indulged in frequent absences from Rome. At one time she had spent six months in England, at another she had passed a portion of a winter in Paris. She had made numerous visits to distant friends, and gave countenance to the idea that, for the future, 
she should be a less inveterate Roman than in the past. As she had been inveterate in the past only in the sense of constantly having an apartment in one of the sunniest niches of the Pincienne, an apartment which often stood empty, this suggested a prospect of almost constant absence, a danger which Isabel at one period had been much inclined to deplore. Familiarity had modified in some degree her first impression of Madame Merle, but it had not essentially altered it. There was still much wonder of admiration in it. That personage was armed at all points. It was a pleasure to see a character so completely equipped for the social battle. She carried her flag discreetly, but her weapons were polished steel, and she used them with a skill which struck Isabel as more and more that of a veteran. She was never weary, never overcome with disgust. She never appeared to need rest or consolation. She had her own ideas. She had of old exposed a great many of them to Isabel, who knew also that under an appearance of extreme self-control her highly cultivated friend concealed a rich sensibility. But her will was mistress of her life. There was something gallant in the way she kept going. It was as if she learned the secret of it, as if the art of life were some clever trick she had guessed. Isabel, as she herself grew older, became acquainted with revulsions, with disgusts. There were days when the world looked black, and she asked herself with some sharpness what it was that she was pretending to live for. Her old habit had been to live by enthusiasm, to fall in love with suddenly perceived possibilities, with the idea of some new adventure. As a younger person, she had been used to proceed from one little exaltation to the other. There were scarcely any dull places between. But Madame Merle had suppressed enthusiasm. She fell in love nowadays with nothing. She lived entirely by reason and by wisdom. There were hours when Isabel would have given anything for lessons in this art. If her brilliant friend had been near, she would have made an appeal to her. She had become aware more than before of the advantage of being like that, of having made oneself a firm surface, a sort of corslet of silver. But, as I say, it was not till the winter during which we lately renewed acquaintance with our heroine that the personage in question made again a continuous stay in Rome. Isabel now saw more of her than she had done since her marriage, but by this time Isabel's needs and inclinations had considerably changed. It was not at present to Madame Merle that she would have applied for instruction. She had lost the desire to know this lady's clever trick. If she had troubles, she must keep them to herself, and if life was difficult, it would not make it easier to confess herself beaten. Madame Merle was doubtless of great use to herself and an ornament to any circle. But was she, would she be, of use to others in periods of refined embarrassment? The best way to profit by her friend—this, indeed, Isabel had always thought—was to imitate her, to be as firm and bright as she. She recognized no embarrassments, and Isabel, considering this fact, determined for the fiftieth time to brush aside her own. It seemed to her, too, on the renewal of an intercourse which had virtually been interrupted, that her old ally was different, was almost detached, pushing to the extreme a certain rather artificial fear of being indiscreet. Ralph Touchett, we know, had been of the opinion that she was prone to exaggeration, to forcing the note, was apt, in the vulgar phrase, to overdo it. Isabel had never admitted this charge. She had indeed never quite understood it. 
Madame Merle's conduct, to her perception, always bore the stamp of good taste, was always quiet. But in this matter of not wishing to intrude upon the inner life of the Osmond family, it at last occurred to our young woman that she overdid a little. That, of course, was not the best taste. That was rather violent. She remembered too much that Isabel was married, that she had now other interests, that though she, Madame Merle, had known Gilbert Osmond and his little pansy very well, better almost than any one, she was not, after all, of the inner circle. She was on her guard. She never spoke of their affairs till she was asked, even pressed, as when her opinion was wanted, she had a dread of seeming to meddle. Madame Merle was as candid as we know, and one day she candidly expressed this dread to Isabel. "'I must be on my guard,' she said. "'I might so easily, without suspecting it, offend you. You would be right to be offended, even if my intention should have been of the purest. I must not forget that I knew your husband long before you did. I must not let that betray me. If you were a silly woman, you might be jealous. You're not a silly woman, I know that very well. But neither am I. Therefore I'm determined not to get into trouble. A little harm's very soon done, a mistake's made before one knows it. Of course, if I had wished to make love to your husband, I had ten years to do it in, and nothing to prevent. So it isn't likely I shall begin to-day when I'm so much less attractive than I was. But if I were to annoy you by seeming to take a place that doesn't belong to me, you wouldn't make that reflection. You'd simply say I was forgetting certain differences. I'm determined not to forget them. Certainly a good friend isn't always thinking of that. One doesn't always suspect one's friends of injustice. I don't suspect you, my dear, in the least. But I suspect human nature. Don't think I make myself uncomfortable. I'm not always watching myself. I think I sufficiently prove it in talking to you as I do now. All I wish to say is, however, that if you were to be jealous, that's the form it would take, I should be sure to think it was a little my fault. It certainly wouldn't be your husband's. Isabel had had three years to think over Mrs. Touchett's theory that Madame Merle had made Gilbert Osmond's marriage. We know how she had at first received it. Madame Merle might have made Gilbert Osmond's marriage, but she had certainly not made Isabel Archer's. That was the work of... Isabel scarcely knew what. Of nature, providence, fortune, of the eternal mystery of things. It was true her aunt's complaint had been not so much of Madame Merle's activity as of her duplicity. She had brought about the strange event, and then she had denied her guilt. Such guilt would not have been great to Isabel's mind. She couldn't make a crime of Madame Merle's having been the producing cause of the most important friendship she had ever formed. This had occurred to her just before her marriage, after her little discussion with her aunt, and at a time when she was still capable of that large inward reference, the tone almost of the philosophic historian, to her scant young annals. If Madame Merle had desired her change of state, she could only say it had been a very happy thought. With her, moreover, she had been perfectly straightforward. She had never concealed her high opinion of Gilbert Osmond. After their union Isabel discovered that her husband took a less convenient view of the matter. He seldom consented to finger, in talk, this roundest and smoothest bead of their social rosary. 
"'Don't you like Madame Merle?' Isabel had once said to him. "'She thinks a great deal of you.' "'I'll tell you once for all,' Osmond had answered. "'I liked her once better than I do today. I'm tired of her, and I'm rather ashamed of it. She's so almost unnaturally good. I'm glad she's not in Italy. It makes for relaxation, for a sort of moral détente. Don't talk of her too much. It seems to bring her back.' She'll come back in plenty of time. Madame Merle, in fact, had come back before it was too late. Too late, I mean, to recover whatever advantage she might have lost. But meantime, if, as I have said, she was sensibly different, Isabel's feelings were also not quite the same. Her consciousness of the situation was as acute as of old, but it was much less satisfying. A dissatisfied mind, whatever else it may miss, is rarely in want of reasons. They bloom as thick as buttercups in June. The fact of Madame Merle's having had a hand in Gilbert Osmond's marriage ceased to be one of her titles to consideration. It might have been written, after all, that there was not so much to thank her for. As time went on there was less and less, and Isabel once said to herself that perhaps without her these things would not have been. That reflection indeed was instantly stifled, she knew an immediate horror at having made it. "'Whatever happens to me, let me not be unjust,' she said. "'Let me bear my burdens myself and not shift them upon others.' This disposition was tested eventually by that ingenious apology for her present conduct which Madame Merle saw fit to make, and of which I have given a sketch. For there was something irritating, there was almost an air of mockery in her neat discriminations and clear convictions. In Isabel's mind to-day there was nothing clear. There was a confusion of regrets, a complication of fears. She felt helpless as she turned away from her friend, who had just made the statements I have quoted. Madame Merle knew so little what she was thinking of. She was herself, moreover, so unable to explain. Jealous of her? Jealous of her with Gilbert? The idea just then suggested no near reality. She almost wished jealousy had been possible. It would have made in a manner for refreshment. Wasn't it in a manner one of the symptoms of happiness? Madame Merle, however, was wise, so wise that she might have been pretending to know Isabel better than Isabel knew herself. This young woman had always been fertile in resolutions, any of them of an elevated character, but at no period had they flourished, in the privacy of her heart, more richly than to-day. It is true that they all had a family likeness. They might have been summed up in the determination that if she was to be unhappy, it should not be by a fault of her own. Her poor, winged spirit had always had a great desire to do its best, and it had not as yet been seriously discouraged. It wished, therefore, to hold fast to justice, not to pay itself by petty revenges. To associate Madame Merle with its disappointment would be a petty revenge, especially as the pleasure to be derived from that would be perfectly insincere. It might feed her sense of bitterness, but it would not loosen her bonds. It was impossible to pretend that she had not acted with her eyes open. If ever a girl was a free agent, she had been. A girl in love was doubtless not a free agent, but the sole source of her mistake had been within herself. There had been no plot, no snare. She had looked, and considered, and chosen. 
when a woman had made such a mistake, there was only one way to repair it, just immensely, oh, with the highest grandeur, to accept it. One folly was enough, especially when it was to last forever. A second one would not much set it off. In this vow of reticence there was a certain nobleness which kept Isabel going. But Madame Merle had been right, for all that, in taking her precautions. One day, about a month after Ralph Touchett's arrival in Rome, Isabel came back from a walk with Pansy. It was not only a part of her general determination to be just that she was at present very thankful for Pansy, it was also a part of her tenderness for things that were pure and weak. Pansy was dear to her, and there was nothing else in her life that had the rightness of the young creature's attachment or the sweetness of her own clearness about it. It was like a soft presence, like a small hand in her own. On Pansy's part it was more than an affection, it was a kind of ardent, coercive faith. On her own side her sense of the girl's dependence was more than a pleasure. It operated as a definite reason when motives threatened to fail her. She had said to herself that we must take our duty where we find it, and that we must look for it as much as possible. Pansy's sympathy was a direct admonition. It seemed to say that here was an opportunity, not eminent perhaps, but unmistakable. Yet an opportunity for what, Isabel could hardly have said, in general to be more for the child than the child was able to be for herself. Isabel could have smiled in these days, to remember that her little companion had once been ambiguous, for she now perceived that Pansy's ambiguities were simply her own grossness of vision. She had been unable to believe any one could care so much, so extraordinarily much, to please. But since then she had seen this delicate faculty in operation, and now she knew what to think of it. It was the whole creature. It was a sort of genius. Pansy had no pride to interfere with it, and though she was constantly extending her conquests, she took no credit for them. The two were constantly together. Mrs. Osmond was rarely seen without her stepdaughter. Isabel liked her company. It had the effect of one's carrying a nosegay composed all of the same flower. And then, not to neglect Pansy, not under any provocation to neglect her, this she had made an article of religion. The young girl had every appearance of being happier in Isabel's society than in that of any one save her father, whom she admired with an intensity justified by the fact that, as paternity was an exquisite pleasure to Gilbert Osmond, he had always been luxuriously mild. Isabel knew how Pansy liked to be with her, and how she studied the means of pleasing her. She had decided that the best way of pleasing her was negative, and consisted in not giving her trouble, a conviction which certainly could have had no reference to trouble already existing. She was therefore ingeniously passive, and almost imaginatively docile. She was careful even to moderate the eagerness with which she assented to Isabel's propositions, and which might have implied that she could have thought otherwise. She never interrupted, never asked social questions, and though she delighted in approbation, to the point of turning pale when it came to her, never held out her hand for it. She only looked toward it wistfully, an attitude which, as she grew older, made her eyes the prettiest in the world. When, during the second winter at Palazzo Rocanera, she began to go to parties, to dances, she always, at a reasonable hour, lest Mrs. Osmond should be tired, was the first to propose departure. Isabel appreciated the sacrifice of the late dances, 
for she knew her little companion had a passionate pleasure in this exercise, taking her steps to the music like a conscientious fairy. Society, moreover, had no drawbacks for her. She liked even the tiresome parts, the heat of ballrooms, the dullness of dinners, the crush at the door, the awkward waiting for the carriage. During the day, in this vehicle beside her stepmother, she sat in a small, fixed, appreciative posture, bending forward and faintly smiling, as if she had been taken to drive for the first time. On the day I speak of, they had been driven out of one of the gates of the city, and at the end of half an hour had left the carriage to await them by the roadside, while they walked away over the short grass of the Campagna, which even in the winter months is sprinkled with delicate flowers. This was almost a daily habit with Isabel, who was fond of a walk and had a swift length of step, though not so swift a one as on her first coming to Europe. It was not the form of exercise that Pansy loved best, but she liked it, because she liked everything, and she moved with a shorter undulation beside her father's wife, who afterwards, on their return to Rome, paid a tribute to her preferences by making the circuit of the Pincian or the Villa Borghese. She had gathered a handful of flowers in a sunny hollow, far from the walls of Rome, and on reaching Palazzo Roconera, went straight to her room to put them into water. Isabel passed into the drawing-room, the one she herself usually occupied, the second in order from the large antechamber which was entered from the staircase, and in which even Gilbert Osmond's rich devices had not been able to correct a look of rather grand nudity. Just beyond the threshold of the drawing-room she stopped short, the reason for her doing so being that she had received an impression. The impression had, in strictness, nothing unprecedented. But she felt it as something new, and the soundlessness of her step gave her time to take in the scene before she interrupted it. Madame Merle was there in her bonnet, and Gilbert Osmond was talking to her. For a minute they were unaware she had come in. Isabel had often seen that before, certainly. But what she had not seen, or at least had not noticed, was that their colloquy had for the moment converted itself into a sort of familiar silence, from which she instantly perceived that her entrance would startle them. Madame Merle was standing on the rug, a little way from the fire. Osmond was in a deep chair, leaning back and looking at her. Her head was erect as usual, but her eyes were bent on his. What struck Isabel first was that he was sitting while Madame Merle stood. There was an anomaly in this that arrested her. Then she perceived that they had arrived at a desultory pause in their exchange of ideas, and were musing, face to face, with the freedom of old friends who sometimes exchange ideas without uttering them. There was nothing to shock in this. They were old friends, in fact. But the thing made an image, lasting only a moment, like a sudden flicker of light. Their relative positions, their absorbed mutual gaze, struck her as something detected. But it was all over by the time she had fairly seen it. Madame Merle had seen her and had welcomed her without moving. Her husband, on the other hand, had instantly jumped up. He presently murmured something about wanting a walk, and after having asked their visitor to excuse him, left the room. "'I came to see you, thinking you would have come in, and as you hadn't, I waited for you,' Madame Merle said. "'Didn't he ask you to sit down?' Isabel asked with a smile. Madame Merle looked about her. "'Ah, it's very true. I was going away. "'You must stay now.' "'Certainly,' 
I came for a reason. I've something on my mind. I've told you that before, Isabel said, that it takes something extraordinary to bring you to this house. And you know what I've told you, that whether I come or whether I stay away, I've always the same motive, the affection I bear you. Yes, you've told me that. You look just now as if you didn't believe it, said Madame Merle. Ah, Isabel answered, the profundity of your motives, that's the last thing I doubt. You doubt sooner the sincerity of my words. Isabel shook her head gravely. I know you've always been kind to me. As often as you would let me. You don't always take it. Then one has to let you alone. It's not to do you a kindness, however, that I've come today. It's quite another affair. I've come to get rid of a trouble of my own, to make it over to you. I've been talking to your husband about it. I'm surprised at that. He doesn't like troubles. Especially other people's, I know very well. But neither do you, I suppose. At any rate, whether you do or not, you must help me. It's about poor Mr. Rosier. Ah, said Isabel reflectively. It's his trouble, then, not yours. He has succeeded in saddling me with it. He comes to see me ten times a week to talk about Pansy. Yes, he wants to marry her. I know all about it. Madame Merle hesitated. I gathered from your husband that perhaps you didn't. How should he know what I know? He has never spoken to me of the matter. It's probably because he doesn't know how to speak of it. It's nevertheless the sort of question in which he's rarely at fault. Yes, because as a general thing he knows perfectly well what to think. Today he doesn't. Haven't you been telling him? Isabel asked. Madame Merle gave a bright, voluntary smile. Do you know you're a little dry? Yes, I can't help it. Mr. Rosier has also talked to me. In that there's some reason. You're so near the child. Ah, said Isabel, for all the comfort I've given him. If you think me dry, I wonder what he thinks. I believe he thinks you can do more than you have done. I can do nothing. You can do more, at least, than I. I don't know what mysterious connection he may have discovered between me and Pansy, but he came to me from the first, as if I held his fortune in my hand. Now he keeps coming back to spur me up, to know what hope there is, to pour out his feelings. He's very much in love, said Isabel. Very much. For him. Very much for Pansy, you might say, as well. Madame Merle dropped her eyes a moment. Don't you think she's attractive? The dearest little person possible, but very limited. She ought to be all the easier for Mr. Rosier to love. Mr. Rosier's not unlimited. No, said Isabel. He has about the extent of one's pocket-handkerchief, the small ones with lace borders. Her humour had lately turned a good deal to sarcasm, but in a moment she was ashamed of exercising it on so innocent an object as Pansy's suitor. "'He's very kind, very honest,' she presently added, "'and he's not such a fool as he seems.' "'He assures me that she delights in him,' said Madame Merle. "'I don't know. I've not asked her.' 
You've never sounded her a little? It's not my place. It's her father's. Oh, you're too literal, said Madame Merle. I must judge for myself. Madame Merle gave her smile again. It isn't easy to help you. To help me, said Isabel very seriously. What do you mean? It's easy to displease you. Don't you see how wise I am to be careful? I notify you, at any rate, as I notified Osmond, that I wash my hands of the love affairs of Miss Pansy and Mr. Edward Rosier. Je n'y pour rien, moi. I can't talk to Pansy about him. Especially, added Madame Merle, as I don't think him a paragon of husbands. Isabel reflected a little, after which, with a smile, "'You don't wash your hands, then,' she said. After which, again, she added in another tone, "'You can't. You're too much interested.' Madame Merle slowly rose. She had given Isabel a look as rapid as the intimation that had gleamed before our heroine a few moments before. Only this time the latter saw nothing. "'Ask him the next time,' and you'll see. I can't ask him. He has ceased to come to the house. Gilbert has let him know that he's not welcome. Ah, uh, yes, said Madame Merle. I forgot that, though it's the burden of his lamentation. He says Osmond has insulted him. All the same, she went on, Osmond doesn't dislike him so much as he thinks. She had got up as if to close the conversation, but she lingered, looking about her and had evidently more to say. Isabel perceived this, and even saw the point she had in view, but Isabel also had her own reasons for not opening the way. "'That must have pleased him, if you've told him,' she answered, smiling. "'Certainly I've told him. As far as that goes, I've encouraged him. I've preached patience, have said that his case isn't desperate if he'll only hold his tongue and be quiet. Unfortunately, he has taken it into his head to be jealous. Jealous? Jealous of Lord Warburton, who, he says, is always here. Isabel, who was tired, had remained sitting, but at this she also rose. Ah! she exclaimed simply, moving slowly to the fireplace. Madame Merle observed her as she passed, and while she stood a moment before the mantel-glass and pushed into its place a wandering tress of hair. Poor Mr. Rosier keeps saying there's nothing impossible in Lord Warburton's falling in love with Pansy, Madame Merle went on. Isabel was silent a little. She turned away from the glass. It's true. There's nothing impossible, she returned at last, gravely and more gently. So I've had to admit to Mr. Rosier— so, too, your husband thinks. That I don't know. Ask him, and you'll see. I shall not ask him, said Isabel. Pardon me, I forgot you had pointed that out. Of course, Madame Merle added, you've had infinitely more observation of Lord Warburton's behaviour than I. I see no reason why I shouldn't tell you that he likes my stepdaughter very much. Madame Merle gave one of her quick looks again. "'Likes her, you mean, as Mr. Rosier means?' "'I don't know how Mr. Rosier means, but Lord Warburton has let me know that he's charmed with Pansy.' "'And you've never told Osmond?' This observation was immediate, precipitate. It almost burst from Madame Merle's lips. 
Isabel's eyes rested on her. "'I suppose he'll know in time. Lord Warburton has a tongue and knows how to express himself.' Madame Merle instantly became conscious that she had spoken more quickly than usual, and the reflection brought the colour to her cheek. She gave the treacherous impulse time to subside, and then said as if she had been thinking it over a little, "'That would be better than marrying poor Mr. Rosier.' "'Much better, I think.' It would be very delightful. It would be a great marriage. It's really very kind of him. Very kind of him? To drop his eyes on a simple little girl. I don't see that. It's very good of you. But after all, Pansy Osmond. After all, Pansy Osmond's the most attractive person he has ever known, Isabel exclaimed. Madame Merle stared, and indeed she was justly bewildered. "'Ah! A moment ago I thought you seemed rather to disparage her. "'I said she was limited, and so she is, and so's Lord Warburton. "'So are we all, if you come to that. "'If it's no more than Pansy deserves, all the better. "'But if she fixes her affections on Mr. Rosier, I won't admit that she deserves it. "'That will be too perverse.' "'Mr. Rosier's a nuisance,' Isabel cried abruptly. I quite agree with you, and I'm delighted to know that I'm not expected to feed his flame. For the future, when he calls on me, my door shall be closed to him. And gathering her mantle together, Madame Merle prepared to depart. She was checked, however, on her progress to the door, by an inconsequent request from Isabel. All the same, you know, be kind to him. She lifted her shoulders and eyebrows, and stood looking at her friend. I don't understand your contradictions. Decidedly, I shan't be kind to him, for it will be a false kindness. I want to see her married to Lord Warburton. You had better wait till he asks her. If what you say is true, he'll ask her. Especially, said Madame Merle in a moment, if you make him. If I make him? It's quite in your power. You've great influence with him. Isabel frowned a little. "'Where did you learn that?' "'Mrs. Touchett told me. "'Not you. Never,' said Madame Merle, smiling. "'I certainly never told you anything of the sort. "'You might have done so, so far as opportunity went, "'when we were by way of being confidential with each other. "'But you really told me very little. "'I've often thought so since.' "'Isabel had thought so, too.' and sometimes with a certain satisfaction. But she didn't admit it now, perhaps because she wished not to appear to exult in it. "'You seem to have had an excellent informant in my aunt,' she simply returned. "'She let me know you had declined an offer of marriage from Lord Warburton, because she was greatly vexed and was full of the subject. Of course I think you've done better in doing as you did. But if you wouldn't marry Lord Warburton yourself, Make him the reparation of helping him to marry someone else. Isabel listened to this with a face that persisted in not reflecting the bright expressiveness of Madame Merle's. But in a moment she said, reasonably and gently enough, I should be very glad indeed if, as regards Pansy, it could be arranged. Upon which her companion, who seemed to regard this as a speech of good omen, embraced her more tenderly than might have been expected, and triumphantly withdrew. End of chapter 40
Chapter Forty One of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Osmond touched on this matter that evening for the first time, coming very late into the drawing room where she was sitting alone. They had spent the evening at home, and Pansy had gone to bed. He himself had been sitting since dinner in a small apartment in which he had arranged his books and which he called his study. At ten o'clock, Lord Warburton had come in, as he always did when he knew from Isabel that she was to be at home. He was going somewhere else, and he sat for half an hour. Isabel, after asking him for news of Ralph, said very little to him on purpose. She wished him to talk with her stepdaughter. She pretended to read. She even went after a little to the piano. She asked herself if she mightn't leave the room. She had come little by little to think well of the idea of Pansy's becoming the wife of the master of beautiful Lockley, though at first it had not presented itself in a manner to excite her enthusiasm. Madame Merle that afternoon had applied the match to an accumulation of inflammable material. When Isabel was unhappy, she always looked about her, partly from impulse and partly by theory, for some form of positive exertion. She could never rid herself of the sense that unhappiness was a state of disease, of suffering as opposed to doing. To do, it hardly mattered what, would therefore be an escape, perhaps in some degree a remedy. Besides, she wished to convince herself that she had done everything possible to content her husband. She was determined not to be haunted by visions of his wife's limpness under appeal. It would please him greatly to see Pansy married to an English nobleman, and justly please him, since this nobleman was so sound a character. It seemed to Isabel that if she could make it her duty to bring about such an event, she should play the part of a good wife. She wanted to be that. She wanted to be able to believe sincerely, and with proof of it, that she had been that. Then such an undertaking had other recommendations. It would occupy her, and she desired occupation. It would even amuse her, and if she could really amuse herself she perhaps might be saved. Lastly, it would be a service to Lord Warburton, who evidently pleased himself greatly with the charming girl. It was a little weird he should, being what he was, but there was no accounting for such impressions. Pansy might captivate any one, any one at least but Lord Warburton. Isabel would have thought her too small, too slight, perhaps even too artificial for that. There was always a little of the doll about her, and that was not what he had been looking for. Still, who could say what men ever were looking for? They looked for what they found. They knew what pleased them only when they saw it. No theory was valid in such matters, and nothing was more unaccountable or more natural than anything else. If he had cared for her, it might seem odd he should care for Pansy, who was so different. But he had not cared for her so much as he had supposed. Or if he had, he had completely got over it, and it was natural that, as the affair had failed, he should think something of quite another sort might succeed. Enthusiasm, as I say, had not come at first to Isabel, but it came to-day, and made her feel almost happy. It was astonishing what happiness she could still find in the idea of procuring a pleasure for her husband. It was a pity, however, that Edward Rosier had crossed their path. At this reflection the light that had suddenly gleamed upon that path lost something of its brightness. 
Isabel was unfortunately as sure that Pansy thought Mr. Rosier the nicest of all the young men, as sure as if she had held an interview with her on the subject. It was very tiresome she should be so sure, when she had carefully abstained from informing herself, almost as tiresome as that poor Mr. Rosier should have taken it into his own head. He was certainly very inferior to Lord Warburton. It was not the difference in fortune so much as the difference in the men. The young American was really so light a weight. He was much more of the type of the useless fine gentleman than the English nobleman. It was true that there was no particular reason why Pansy should marry a statesman. Still, if a statesman admired her, that was his affair, and she would make a perfect little pearl of a peeress. It may seem to the reader that Mrs. Osmond had grown of a sudden strangely cynical, for she ended by saying to herself that this difficulty could probably be arranged. An impediment that was embodied in poor Rosier could not anyhow present itself as a dangerous one. There were always means of levelling secondary obstacles. Isabel was perfectly aware that she had not taken the measure of Pansy's tenacity, which might prove to be inconveniently great. But she inclined to see her as rather letting go under suggestions than as clutching under deprecation, since she had certainly the faculty of assent developed in a very much higher degree than that of protest. She would cling, yes, she would cling, but it really mattered to her very little what she clung to. Lord Warburton would do as well as Mr. Rosier, especially as she seemed quite to like him. She had expressed this sentiment to Isabel without a single reservation. She had said she thought his conversation most interesting. He had told her all about India. His manner to Pansy had been of the rightest and easiest. Isabel noticed that for herself. As she also observed that he talked to her not in the least in a patronizing way, reminding himself of her youth and simplicity, but quite as if she understood his subjects with that sufficiency with which she followed those of the fashionable operas. This went far enough for attention to the music and the baritone. He was careful only to be kind. He was as kind as he had been to another fluttered young chit at Garden Court. A girl might well be touched by that. She remembered how she herself had been touched, and said to herself that if she had been as simple as Pansy, the impression would have been deeper still. She had not been simple when she refused him. That operation had been as complicated as, later, her acceptance of Osmond had been. Pansy, however, in spite of her simplicity, really did understand, and was glad that Lord Warburton should talk to her, not about her partners and bouquets, but about the state of Italy, the condition of the peasantry, the famous grist tax, the pellagra, his impressions of Roman society. She looked at him, as she drew her needle through her tapestry, with sweet, submissive eyes, and when she lowered them she gave little quiet oblique glances at his person, his hands, his feet, his clothes, as if she were considering him. Even his person, Isabel might have reminded her, was better than Mr. Rosier's. But Isabel contented herself at such moments with wondering where this gentleman was. He came no more at all to Palazzo Rocanera. It was surprising, as I say, the hold it had taken of her, the idea of assisting her husband to be pleased. It was surprising for a variety of reasons, which I shall presently touch upon. On the evening I speak of, while Lord Warburton sat there, she had been on the point of taking the great step of going out of the room and leaving her companions alone. I say the great step, because it was in this light that Gilbert Osmond would have regarded it, and Isabel was trying as much as possible to take her husband's view. She succeeded after a fashion, but she fell short of the point I mention. 
After all, she couldn't rise to it. Something held her and made this impossible. It was not exactly that it would be base or insidious, for women as a general thing practice such manoeuvres with a perfectly good conscience, and Isabel was instinctively much more true than false to the common genius of her sex. There was a vague doubt that interposed, a sense that she was not quite sure. So she remained in the drawing-room, and after a while Lord Warburton went off to his party, of which he promised to give Pansy a full account on the morrow. After he had gone, she wondered if she had prevented something which would have happened if she had absented herself for a quarter of an hour, and then pronounced, always mentally, that when their distinguished visitors should wish her to go away, he would easily find means to let her know it. Pansy said nothing whatever about him after he had gone, and Isabel studiously said nothing, as she had taken a vow of reserve until after he should have declared himself. He was a little longer in coming to this than might seem to accord with the description he had given Isabel of his feelings. Pansy went to bed, and Isabel had to admit that she could not now guess what her stepdaughter was thinking of. Her transparent little companion was, for the moment, not to be seen through. She remained alone, looking at the fire, until at the end of half an hour her husband came in. He moved about a while in silence and then sat down. He looked at the fire like herself. But she now had transferred her eyes from the flickering flame in the chimney to Osmond's face, and she watched him while he kept his silence. Covert observation had become a habit with her, an instinct of which it is not an exaggeration to say that it was allied to that of self-defence, had made it habitual. She wished as much as possible to know his thoughts, to know what he would say beforehand, so that she might prepare her answer. Preparing answers had not been her strong point of old. She had rarely in this respect got further than thinking afterwards of clever things she might have said. But she had learned caution, learned it in a measure from her husband's very countenance. It was the same face she had looked into with eyes equally earnest, perhaps, but less penetrating, on the terrace of a Florentine villa. Except that Osmond had grown slightly stouter since his marriage. He still, however, might strike one as very distinguished. "'Has Lord Warburton been here?' he presently asked. "'Yes, he stayed half an hour.' "'Did he see Pansy?' "'Yes, he sat on the sofa beside her.' Did he talk with her much? He talked almost only to her. It seems to me he's attentive. Isn't that what you call it? I don't call it anything, said Isabel. I've waited for you to give it a name. That's consideration you don't always show, Osmond answered after a moment. I've determined this time to try and act as you'd like. I've so often failed of that. Osmond turned his head slowly, looking at her. "'Are you trying to quarrel with me?' "'No, I'm trying to live at peace.' "'Nothing's more easy. You know I don't quarrel myself.' "'What do you call it when you try to make me angry?' Isabel asked. "'I don't try. If I've done so, it has been the most natural thing in the world. Moreover, I'm not in the least trying now.' Isabel smiled. "'It doesn't matter.' I've determined never to be angry again. That's an excellent resolve. Your temper isn't good. No, it's not good. She pushed away the book she had been reading, and took up the band of tapestry Pansy had left on the table. That's partly why I've not spoken to you about this business of my daughter's. 
Osmond said, designating Pansy in the manner that was most frequent with him. I was afraid I should encounter opposition, that you too would have views on the subject. I've sent little Rosier about his business. You were afraid I'd plead for Mr. Rosier? Haven't you noticed that I've never spoken to you of him? I've never given you a chance. We've so little conversation in these days. I know he was an old friend of yours. Yes, he's an old friend of mine. Isabel cared little more for him than for the tapestry that she held in her hand, but it was true that he was an old friend and that with her husband she felt a desire not to extenuate such ties. He had a way of expressing contempt for them which fortified her loyalty to them, even when, as in the present case, they were in themselves insignificant. She sometimes felt a sort of passion of tenderness for memories which had no other merit than that they belonged to her unmarried life. "'But as regards Pansy,' she added in a moment, "'I've given him no encouragement.' "'That's fortunate,' Osmond observed. "'Fortunate for me, I suppose you mean. For him it matters little.' "'There's no use talking of him,' Osmond said. "'As I tell you, I've turned him out.' Yes, but a lover outside's always a lover. He's sometimes even more of one. Mr. Rosier still has hope. He's welcome to the comfort of it. My daughter has only to sit perfectly quiet to become Lady Warburton. Should you like that? Isabel asked with a simplicity which was not so affected as it may appear. She was resolved to assume nothing, for Osmond had a way of unexpectedly turning her assumptions against her. The intensity with which he would like his daughter to become Lady Warburton had been the very basis of her own recent reflections. But that was for herself. She would recognize nothing until Osmond should have put it into words. She would not take for granted with him that he thought Lord Warburton a prize worth an amount of effort that was unusual among the Osmonds. It was Gilbert's constant intimation that for him nothing in life was a prize, that he treated as from equal to equal with the most distinguished people in the world and that his daughter had only to look about her to pick out a prince. It cost him, therefore, a lapse from consistency to say explicitly that he yearned for Lord Warburton, and that if this nobleman escaped, his equivalent might not be found, with which, moreover, it was another of his customary implications that he was never inconsistent. He would have liked his wife to glide over the point. But strangely enough, now that she was face to face with him, and although an hour before she had almost invented a scheme for pleasing him, Isabel was not accommodating, would not glide. And yet she knew exactly the effect on his mind of her question. It would operate as an humiliation. Never mind. He was terribly capable of humiliating her, all the more so that he was also capable of waiting for great opportunities and of showing sometimes an almost unaccountable indifference to small ones. Isabel, perhaps, took a small opportunity because she would not have availed herself of a great one. Osmond, at present, acquitted himself very honourably. "'I should like it extremely. It would be a great marriage. And then Lord Warburton has another advantage. He's an old friend of yours. It would be pleasant for him to come into the family. It's very odd Pansy's admirers should all be your old friends.' "'It's natural that they should come to see me.' In coming to see me, they see Pansy. Seeing her, it's natural they should fall in love with her. So I think. But you're not bound to do so. If she should marry Lord Warburton, I should be very glad, Isabel went on. He's an excellent man. 
You say, however, that she has only to sit perfectly still. Perhaps she won't sit perfectly still. If she loses Mr. Rosier, she may jump up. Osmond appeared to give no heed to this. He sat gazing at the fire. Pansy would like to be a great lady, he remarked in a moment with a certain tenderness of tone. She wishes above all to please, he added. To please Mr. Rosier, perhaps? No, to please me. Me too, a little, I think, said Isabel. Yes, she has a great opinion of you, but she'll do what I like. If you're sure of that, it's very well, she went on. Meantime, said Osmond, I should like our distinguished visitor to speak. He has spoken, to me. He has told me it would be a great pleasure to him to believe she could care for him. Osmond turned his head quickly, but at first he said nothing. Then, why didn't you tell me that? he asked sharply. There was no opportunity. You know how we live. I've taken the first chance that is offered. Did you speak to him of Rosier? Oh, yes, a little. That was hardly necessary. I thought it best he should know that, so that, so that— And Isabel paused. So that what? So that he might act accordingly. So that he might back out, do you mean? No, so that he might advance while there's yet time. That's not the effect it seems to have had. You should have patience, said Isabel. You know Englishmen are shy. This one's not. He was not when he made love to you. She had been afraid Osmond would speak of that. It was disagreeable to her. I beg your pardon. He was extremely so, she returned. He answered nothing for some time. He took up a book and fingered the pages while she sat silent and occupied herself with Pansy's tapestry. "'You must have a great deal of influence with him,' Osmond went on at last. "'The moment you really wish it, you can bring him to the point.' This was more offensive still, but she felt the great naturalness of his saying it, and it was, after all, extremely like what she had said to herself. "'Why should I have influence?' she asked. What have I ever done to put him under an obligation to me? You refuse to marry him, said Osmond, with his eyes on his book. I must not presume too much on that, she replied. He threw down the book presently and got up, standing before the fire with his hands behind him. Well, I hold that it lies in your hands. I shall leave it there. With a little good will you may manage it. Think that over, and remember how much I count on you. He waited a little, to give her time to answer. But she answered nothing, and he presently strolled out of the room. End of chapter 41「Chapter 42 of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She had answered nothing because his words had put the situation before her, and she was absorbed in looking at it. There was something in them that suddenly made vibrations deep, so that she had been afraid to trust herself to speak. After he had gone, she leaned back in her chair and closed her eyes, and for a long time, far into the night and still further, she sat in the still drawing-room, given up to her meditation. 
a servant came in to attend to the fire, and she bade him bring fresh candles and then go to bed. Osmond had told her to think of what he had said, and she did so indeed, and of many other things. The suggestion from another that she had a definite influence on Lord Warburton, this had given her the start that accompanies unexpected recognition. Was it true that there was something still between them that might be a handle to make him declare himself to Pansy, a susceptibility on his part to approval, a desire to do what would please her? Isabel had hitherto not asked herself the question, because she had not been forced. But now that it was directly presented to her, she saw the answer, and the answer frightened her. Yes, there was something, something on Lord Warburton's part. When he had first come to Rome she believed the link that united them to be completely snapped. But little by little she had been reminded that it had yet a palpable existence. It was as thin as a hair, but there were moments when she seemed to hear it vibrate. For herself nothing was changed. What she once thought of him she always thought. It was needless this feeling should change. It seemed to her, in fact, a better feeling than ever. But he? Had he still the idea that she might be more to him than other women? Had he the wish to profit by the memory of the few moments of intimacy through which they had once passed? Isabel knew she had read some of the signs of such a disposition. But what were his hopes, his pretensions, and in what strange way were they mingled with his evidently very sincere appreciation of poor Pansy? Was he in love with Gilbert Osmond's wife, and if so, what comfort did he expect to derive from it? If he was in love with Pansy, he was not in love with her stepmother, and if he was in love with her stepmother, he was not in love with Pansy. Was she to cultivate the advantage she possessed in order to make him commit himself to Pansy, knowing he would do so for her sake, and not for the small creature's own? Was this the service her husband had asked of her? This, at any rate, was the duty with which she found herself confronted. From the moment she admitted to herself that her old friend had still an uneradicated predilection for her society. It was not an agreeable task. It was, in fact, a repulsive one. She asked herself with dismay whether Lord Warburton were pretending to be in love with Pansy in order to cultivate another satisfaction, and what might be called other chances. Of this refinement of duplicity she presently acquitted him. She preferred to believe him in perfect good faith. But if his admiration for Pansy were a delusion, this was scarcely better than its being an affectation. Isabel wandered among these ugly possibilities, until she had completely lost her way. Some of them, as she suddenly encountered them, seemed ugly enough. Then she broke out of the labyrinth, rubbing her eyes, and declared that her imagination surely did her little honour, and that her husband's did him even less. Lord Warburton was as disinterested as he need be, and she was no more to him than she need wish. She would rest upon this till the contrary should be proved, proved more effectually than by a cynical intimation of Osmond's. Such a resolution, however, brought her this evening but little peace, 
for her soul was haunted with terrors which crowded to the foreground of thought as quickly as a place was made for them what had suddenly set them into livelier motion she hardly knew unless it were the strange impression she had received in the afternoon of her husband's being in more direct communication with madame merle than she suspected that impression came back to her from time to time and now she wondered it had never come before besides this her short interview with osmond half an hour ago was a striking example of his faculty for making everything wither that he touched spoiling everything for her that he looked at it was very well to undertake to give him a proof of loyalty the real fact was that the knowledge of his expecting a thing raised a presumption against it it was as if he had had the evil eye as if his presence were a blight and his favour a misfortune was the fault in himself or only in the deep mistrust she had conceived for him this mistrust was now the clearest result of their short married life a gulf had opened between them over which they looked at each other with eyes that were on either side a declaration of the deception suffered it was a strange opposition of the like of which she had never dreamed an opposition in which the vital principle of the one was a thing of contempt to the other it was not her fault she had practised no deception she had only admired and believed she had taken all the first steps in the purest confidence and then she had suddenly found the infinite vista of a multiplied life to be a dark narrow alley with a dead wall at the end instead of leading to the high places of happiness from which the world would seem to lie below one so that one could look down with a sense of exaltation and advantage and judge and choose and pity it led rather downward and earthward into realms of restriction and depression where the sound of other lives easier and freer was heard as from above and where it served to deepen the feeling of failure it was her deep distrust of her husband this was what darkened the world that is a sentiment easily indicated but not so easily explained and so composite in its character that much time and still more suffering had been needed to bring it to its actual perfection suffering with isabel was an active condition it was not a chill a stupor a despair it was a passion of thought of speculation of response to every pressure she flattered herself that she had kept her failing faith to herself however that no one suspected it but osmond oh he knew it and there were times when she thought he enjoyed it it had come gradually it was not till the first year of their life together so admirably intimate at first had closed that she had taken the alarm then the shadows had begun to gather it was as if osmond deliberately almost malignantly had put the lights out one by one the dusk at first was vague and thin and she could still see her way in it but it steadily deepened and if now and again it had occasionally lifted there were certain corners of her prospect that were impenetrably black these shadows were not an emanation from her own mind she was very sure of that she had done her best to be just and temperate to see only the truth they were a part they were a kind of creation and consequence of her husband's very presence 
they were not his misdeeds his turpitudes she accused him of nothing that is but of one thing which was not a crime she knew of no wrong he had done he was not violent he was not cruel she simply believed he hated her that was all she accused him of and the miserable part of it was precisely that it was not a crime for against a crime she might have found redress he had discovered that she was so different that she was not like what he had believed she would prove to be he had thought at first he could change her and she had done her best to be what he would like but she was after all herself she couldn't help that and now there was no use pretending wearing a mask or a dress for he knew her and had made up his mind she was not afraid of him she had no apprehension he would hurt her for the ill-will he bore her was not of that sort he would if possible never give her a pretext never put himself in the wrong isabel scanning the future with dry fixed eyes saw that he would have the better of her there she would give him many pretexts she would often put herself in the wrong there were times when she almost pitied him for if she had not deceived him in intention she understood how completely she must have done so in fact she had effaced herself when he first knew her she had made herself small pretending there was less of her than there really was it was because she had been under the extraordinary charm that he on his side had taken pains to put forth he was not changed he had not disguised himself during the year of his courtship any more than she but she had seen only half his nature then as one saw the disk of the moon when it was partly masked by the shadow of the earth she saw the full moon now she saw the whole man she had kept still as it were so that he should have a free field and yet in spite of this she had mistaken a part for the whole ah she had been immensely under the charm it had not passed away it was there still she still knew perfectly what it was that made osmond delightful when he chose to be he had wished to be when he made love to her and as she had wished to be charmed it was not wonderful he had succeeded he had succeeded because he had been sincere it never occurred to her now to deny him that he admired her he had told her why because she was the most imaginative woman he had known it might very well have been true for during those months she had imagined a world of things that had no substance she had had a more wondrous vision of him fed through charmed senses and oh such a stirred fancy she had not read him right a certain combination of features had touched her and in them she had seen the most striking of figures that he was poor and lonely and yet that somehow he was noble that was what had interested her and seemed to give her her opportunity there had been an indefinable beauty about him in his situation in his mind in his face she had felt at the same time that he was helpless and ineffectual but the feeling had taken the form of a tenderness which was the very flower of respect he was like a sceptical voyager strolling on the beach while he waited for the tide looking seaward yet not putting to sea it was in all this she had found her occasion she would launch his boat for him she would be his providence it would be a good thing to love him 
and she had loved him she had so anxiously and yet so ardently given herself a good deal for what she found in him but a good deal also for what she brought him and what might enrich the gift as she looked back at the passion of those full weeks she perceived in it a kind of maternal strain the happiness of a woman who felt that she was a contributor that she came with charged hands but for her money as she saw to-day she would never have done it and then her mind wandered off to poor mr touchett sleeping under english turf the beneficent author of infinite woe for this was the fantastic fact at bottom her money had been a burden had been on her mind which was filled with the desire to transfer the weight of it to some other conscience to some more prepared receptacle what would lighten her own conscience more effectually than to make it over to the man with the best taste in the world unless she should have given it to a hospital there would have been nothing better she could do with it and there was no charitable institution in which she had been as much interested as in gilbert osmond he would use her fortune in a way that would make her think better of it and rub off a certain grossness attaching to the good luck of an unexpected inheritance there had been nothing very delicate in inheriting seventy thousand pounds the delicacy had been all in mr touchett's leaving them to her but to marry gilbert osmond and bring him such a portion in that there would be delicacy for her as well there would be less for him that was true but that was his affair and if he loved her he wouldn't object to her being rich had he not had the courage to say he was glad she was rich isabel's cheek burned when she asked herself if she had really married on a factitious theory in order to do something finely appreciable with her money but she was able to answer quickly enough that this was only half the story it was because a certain ardour took possession of her a sense of the earnestness of his affection and a delight in his personal qualities he was better than any one else this supreme conviction had filled her life for months and enough of it still remained to prove to her that she could not have done otherwise the finest in the sense of being the subtlest manly organism she had ever known had become her property and the recognition of her having but to put out her hands and take it had been originally a sort of act of devotion she had not been mistaken about the beauty of his mind she knew that organ perfectly now she had lived with it she had lived in it almost it appeared to have become her habitation if she had been captured it had taken a firm hand to seize her that reflection perhaps had some worth a mind more ingenious more pliant more cultivated more trained to admirable exercises she had not encountered and it was this exquisite instrument she had now to reckon with she lost herself in infinite dismay when she thought of the magnitude of his deception it was a wonder perhaps in view of this that he didn't hate her more she remembered perfectly the first sign he had given of it it had been like a bell that was to ring up the curtain upon the real drama of their life he said to her one day that she had too many ideas and that she must get rid of them he had told her that already before their marriage but then she had not noticed it it had come back to her only afterwards this time she might well have noticed it because he had really meant it the words had been nothing superficially 
but when in the light of deepening experience she had looked into them they had then appeared portentous he had really meant it he would have liked her to have nothing of her own but her pretty appearance she had known she had too many ideas she had more even than he had supposed many more than she had expressed to him when he had asked her to marry him yes she had been hypocritical she had liked him so much she had too many ideas for herself but that was just what one married for to share them with someone else one couldn't pluck them up by the roots though of course one might suppress them be careful not to utter them it had not been this however his objecting to her opinions this had been nothing she had no opinions none that she would not have been eager to sacrifice in the satisfaction of feeling herself loved for it what he had meant had been the whole thing her character the way she felt the way she judged this was what she had kept in reserve this was what he had not known until he had found himself with the door closed behind as it were set down face to face with she had a certain way of looking at life which he took as a personal offence heaven knew that now at least it was a very humble accommodating way the strange thing was that she should not have suspected from the first that his own had been so different she had thought it so large so enlightened so perfectly that of an honest man and a gentleman hadn't he assured her that he had no superstitions no dull limitations no prejudices that had lost their freshness hadn't he all the appearance of a man living in the open air of the world indifferent to small considerations caring only for truth and knowledge and believing that two intelligent people ought to look for them together and whether they found them or not find at least some happiness in the search he had told her he loved the conventional but there was a sense in which this seemed a noble declaration in that sense that of the love of harmony and order and decency and of all the stately offices of life she went with him freely and his warning had contained nothing ominous but when as the months had elapsed she had followed him further and he had led her into the mansion of his own habitation then then she had seen where she really was she could live it over again the incredulous terror with which she had taken the measure of her dwelling between those four walls she had lived ever since they were to surround her for the rest of her life it was the house of darkness the house of dumbness the house of suffocation osmond's beautiful mind gave it neither light nor air osmond's beautiful mind indeed seemed to peep down from a small high window and mock at her of course it had not been physical suffering for physical suffering there might have been a remedy she could come and go she had her liberty her husband was perfectly polite he took himself so seriously it was something appalling under all his culture his cleverness his amenity under his good nature his facility his knowledge of life his egotism lay hidden like a serpent in a bank of flowers she had taken him seriously but she had not taken him so seriously as that how could she especially when she had known him better she was to think of him as he thought of himself as the first gentleman in europe so it was that she had thought of him at first and that indeed was the reason she had married him 
but when she began to see what it implied she drew back there was more in the bond than she had meant to put her name to it implied a sovereign contempt for every one but some three or four very exalted people whom he envied and for every one in the world but half a dozen ideas of his own that was very well she would have gone with him even there a long distance for he pointed out to her so much of the baseness and shabbiness of life opened her eyes so wide to the stupidity the depravity the ignorance of mankind that she had been properly impressed with the infinite vulgarity of things and of the virtue of keeping oneself unspotted by it but this base if noble world it appeared was after all what one was to live for one was to keep it for ever in one's eye in order not to enlighten or convert or redeem it but to extract from it some recognition of one's own superiority on the one hand it was despicable but on the other it afforded a standard osmond had talked to isabel about his renunciation his indifference the ease with which he dispensed with the usual aids to success and all this had seemed to her admirable she had thought it a grand indifference an exquisite independence but indifference was really the last of his qualities she had never seen any one who thought so much of others for herself avowedly the world had always interested her and the study of her fellow-creatures been her constant passion she would have been willing however to renounce all her curiosities and sympathies for the sake of a personal life if the person concerned had only been able to make her believe it was a gain this at least was her present conviction and the thing certainly would have been easier than to care for society as osmond cared for it he was unable to live without it and she saw that he had never really done so he had looked at it out of his window even when he appeared to be most detached from it he had his ideal just as she had tried to have hers only it was strange that people should seek for justice in such different quarters his ideal was a conception of high prosperity and propriety of the aristocratic life which he now saw that he deemed himself always in essence at least to have led he had never lapsed from it for an hour he would never have recovered from the shame of doing so that again was very well here too she would have agreed but they attached such different ideas such different associations and desires to the same formulas her notion of the aristocratic life was simply the union of great knowledge with great liberty the knowledge would give one a sense of duty and the liberty a sense of enjoyment but for osmond it was altogether a thing of forms a conscious calculated attitude he was fond of the old the consecrated the transmitted so was she but she pretended to do what she chose with it he had an immense esteem for tradition he had told her once that the best thing in the world was to have it but that if one was so unfortunate as to not have it one must immediately proceed to make it she knew that he meant by this that she hadn't it but that he was better off though from what source he had derived his traditions she had never learned he had a very large collection of them however that was very certain and after a little she began to see the great thing was to act in accordance with them the great thing not only for him but for her isabel had an undefined conviction that to serve for another person than their proprietor traditions must be of a thoroughly superior kind 
but she nevertheless assented to this intimation that she too must march to the stately music that floated down from unknown periods in her husband's past she who of old had been so free of step so desultory so devious so much the reverse of processional there were certain things they must do a certain posture they must take certain people they must know and not know when she saw this rigid system close about her draped though it was in pictured tapestries that sense of darkness and suffocation of which i have spoken took possession of her she seemed shut up with an odour of mould and decay she had resisted of course at first very humorously ironically tenderly then as the situation grew more serious eagerly passionately pleadingly she had pleaded the cause of freedom of doing as they chose of not caring for the aspect and denomination of their life the cause of other instincts and longings of quite another ideal then it was that her husband's personality touched as it never had been stepped forth and stood erect the things she had said were answered only by his scorn and she could see he was ineffably ashamed of her what did he think of her that she was base vulgar ignoble he at least knew now that she had no traditions it had not been in his provision of things that she should reveal such flatness her sentiments were worthy of a radical newspaper or a unitarian preacher the real offence as she ultimately perceived was her having a mind of her own at all her mind was to be his attached to his own like a small garden plot to a deer park he would rake the soil gently and water the flowers he would weed the beds and gather an occasional nosegay it would be a pretty piece of property for a proprietor already far-reaching he didn't wish her to be stupid on the contrary it was because she was clever that she had pleased him but he expected her intelligence to operate altogether in his favour and so far from desiring her mind to be a blank he had flattered himself that it would be richly receptive he had expected his wife to feel with him and for him to enter into his opinions his ambitions his preferences and isabel was obliged to confess that this was no great insolence on the part of a man so accomplished and a husband originally at least so tender but there were certain things she could never take in to begin with they were hideously unclean she was not a daughter of the puritans but for all that she believed in such a thing as chastity and even as decency it would appear that osmond was far from doing anything of the sort some of his traditions made her push back her skirts did all women have lovers did they all lie and even the best have their price were there only three or four that didn't deceive their husbands when isabel heard such things she felt a greater scorn for them than for the gossip of a village parlour a scorn that kept its freshness in a very tainted air there was the taint of her sister-in-law did her husband judge only by the countess gemini this lady very often lied and she had practised deceptions that were not simply verbal it was enough to find these facts assumed among osmond's traditions it was enough without giving them such a general extension it was her scorn of his assumptions it was this that made him draw himself up 
he had plenty of contempt, and it was proper his wife should be as well furnished. But that she should turn the hot light of her disdain upon his own conception of things, this was a danger he had not allowed for. He believed he should have regulated her emotions before she came to it, and Isabel could easily imagine how his ears had scorched on his discovering he had been too confident. When one had a wife who gave one that sensation, there was nothing left but to hate her. She was morally certain now that this feeling of hatred, which at first had been a refuge and a refreshment, had become the occupation and comfort of his life. The feeling was deep, because it was sincere. He had had the revelation that she could after all dispense with him. If to herself the idea was startling, if it presented itself at first as a kind of infidelity, a capacity for pollution, what infinite effect might it not be expected to have had upon him? It was very simple. He despised her. She had no traditions, and the moral horizon of a Unitarian minister. Poor Isabel, who had never been able to understand Unitarianism. This was the certitude she had been living with now for a time that she had ceased to measure. What was coming? What was before them? That was her constant question. What would he do? What ought she to do? When a man hated his wife, what did it lead to? She didn't hate him, that she was sure of, for every little while she felt a passionate wish to give him a pleasant surprise. Very often, however, she felt afraid, and it used to come over her, as I have intimated, that she had deceived him at the very first. They were strangely married at all events, and it was a horrible life. Until that morning he had scarcely spoken to her for a week. His manner was as dry as a burned-out fire. She knew there was a special reason. He was displeased at Ralph Touchett's staying on in Rome. He thought she saw too much of her cousin. He had told her a week before it was indecent she should go to him at his hotel. He would have said more than this if Ralph's invalid state had not appeared to make it brutal to denounce him. But having had to contain himself had only deepened his disgust. Isabel read all this as she would have read the hour on the clock-face. She was as perfectly aware that the sight of her interest in her cousin stirred her husband's rage, as if Osmond had locked her into her room, which she was sure was what he wanted to do. It was her honest belief that on the whole she was not defiant, but she certainly couldn't pretend to be indifferent to Ralph. She believed he was dying at last, and that she should never see him again, and this gave her a tenderness for him that she had never known before. Nothing was a pleasure to her now. How could anything be a pleasure to a woman who knew that she had thrown away her life? There was an everlasting weight on her heart. There was a livid light on everything. But Ralph's little visit was a lamp in the darkness. For the hour that she sat with him, her ache for herself became somehow her ache for him. She felt today as if he had been her brother. She had never had a brother. But if she had, and she were in trouble, and he were dying, he would be dear to her, as Ralph was. Ah, yes, if Gilbert was jealous of her there was perhaps some reason. It didn't make Gilbert look better to sit for a half an hour with Ralph. It was not that they talked of him. It was not that she complained. His name was never uttered between them. It was simply that Ralph was generous, 
and that her husband was not. There was something in Ralph's talk, in his smile, in the mere fact of his being in Rome, that made the blasted circle round which she walked more spacious. He made her feel the good of the world. He made her feel what might have been. He was, after all, as intelligent as Osmond, quite apart from his being better. And thus it seemed to her an act of devotion to conceal her misery from him. She concealed it elaborately. She was perpetually, in their talk, hanging out curtains and before her again. It lived before her again. It had never had time to die. That morning in the garden at Florence, when he had warned her against Osmond. She had only to close her eyes to see the place, to hear his voice, to feel the warm, sweet air. How could he have known? What a mystery, what a wonder of wisdom! As intelligent as Gilbert? He was much more intelligent to arrive at such a judgment as that. Gilbert had never been so deep, so just. She had told him then that from her at least he should never know if he was right. And this was what she was taking care of now. It gave her plenty to do. There was a passion, exaltation, religion in it. Women find their religion sometimes in strange exercises, and Isabel, at present, in playing a part before her cousin, had an idea that she was doing him a kindness. It would have been a kindness, perhaps, if he had been for a single instant a dupe. As it was, the kindness consisted mainly in trying to make him believe that he had once wounded her greatly, and that the event had put him to shame, but that, as she was very generous and he was so ill, she bore him no grudge, and even considerately forbore to flaunt her happiness in his face. Ralph smiled to himself as he lay on his sofa, at this extraordinary form of consideration, but he forgave her for having forgiven him. She didn't wish him to have the pain of knowing she was unhappy. That was the great thing, and it didn't matter that such knowledge would rather have righted him. For herself, she lingered in the soundless saloon long after the fire had gone out. There was no danger of her feeling the cold. She was in a fever. She heard the small hours strike, and then the great ones, but her vigil took no heed of time. Her mind, assailed by visions, was in a state of extraordinary activity, and her visions might as well come to her there, where she sat up to meet them, as on her pillow, to make a mockery of rest. As I have said, she believed she was not defiant, and what could be a better proof of it than that she should linger there half the night, trying to persuade herself that there was no reason why Pansy shouldn't be married as he would put a letter in the post-office. When the clock struck four she got up. She was going to bed at last, for the lamp had long since gone out, and the candles burned down to their sockets. But even then she stopped again in the middle of the room, and stood there gazing at a remembered vision, that of her husband and Madame Merle, unconsciously and familiarly associated. End of chapter 42Chapter forty three of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 
Three nights after this, she took Pansy to a great party, to which Osmond, who never went to dances, did not accompany them. Pansy was as ready for a dance as ever. She was not of a generalising turn, and had not extended to other pleasures the interdict she had seen placed on those of love. If she was biding her time, or hoping to circumvent her father, she must have had a prevision of success. Isabel thought this unlikely. It was much more likely that Pansy had simply determined to be a good girl. She had never had such a chance, and she had a proper esteem for chances. She carried herself no less attentively than usual, and kept no less anxious an eye upon her vaporous skirts. She held her bouquet very tight, and counted over the flowers for the twentieth time. She made Isabel feel old. It seemed so long since she had been in a flutter about a ball. Pansy, who was greatly admired, was never in want of partners, and very soon after their arrival she gave Isabel, who was not dancing, her bouquet to hold. Isabel had rendered her this service for some minutes when she became aware of the near presence of Edward Rosier. He stood before her. He had lost his affable smile, and wore a look of almost military resolution. The change in his appearance would have made Isabel smile if she had not felt his case to be at bottom a hard one. He had always smelt so much more of heliotrope than of gunpowder. He looked at her a moment somewhat fiercely, as if to notify her he was dangerous, and then dropped his eyes on her bouquet. After he had inspected it, his glance softened, and he said quickly, "'It's all pansies. It must be hers.' Isabel smiled kindly. "'Yes, it's hers. She gave it to me to hold.' "'May I hold it a little, Mrs. Osmond?' the poor young man asked. "'No, I can't trust you. I'm afraid you wouldn't give it back.' "'I'm not sure that I should. I should leave the house with it instantly.' but may I not at least have a single flower?" Isabel hesitated a moment, and then, smiling still, held out the bouquet. "'Choose one yourself. It's frightful what I'm doing for you.' "'Ah, if you do no more than this, Mrs. Osmond,' Rosier exclaimed, with his glass in one eye, carefully choosing his flower. "'Don't put it into your buttonhole,' she said. "'Don't for the world!' I should like her to see it. She has refused to dance with me, but I wish to show her that I believe in her still. It's very well to show it to her, but it's out of place to show it to others. Her father has told her not to dance with you. And is that all you can do for me? I expected more from you, Mrs. Osmond, said the young man in a tone of fine general reference. You know our acquaintance goes back very far, quite into the days of our innocent childhood. "'Don't make me out too old,' Isabel patiently answered. "'You come back to that very often, and I've never denied it. "'But I must tell you that, old friends as we are, "'if you had done me the honour to ask me to marry you, "'I should have refused you on the spot.' "'Ah, you don't esteem me, then. "'Say at once that you think me a mere Parisian trifler.' "'I esteem you very much, but I'm not in love with you.' What I mean by that, of course, is that I'm not in love with you for Pansy. Very good. I see. You pity me, that's all. And Edward Rosier looked all round, inconsequently, with his single glass. It was a revelation to him that people shouldn't be more pleased. 
but he was at least too proud to show that the deficiency struck him as general. Isabel for a moment said nothing. His manner and appearance had not the dignity of the deepest tragedy. His little glass, among other things, was against that. But she suddenly felt touched. Her own unhappiness, after all, had something in common with his. And it came over her, more than before, that here, in recognizable, if not in romantic form, was the most affecting thing in the world, young love struggling with adversity. "'Would you really be very kind to her?' she finally asked in a low tone. He dropped his eyes devoutly, and raised the little flower that he held in his fingers to his lips. Then he looked at her. "'You pity me, but don't you pity her a little?' "'I don't know. I'm not sure. She'll always enjoy life.' "'It will depend on what you call life,' Mr. Rosier effectively said. "'She won't enjoy being tortured.' "'There'll be nothing of that.' "'I'm glad to hear it. She knows what she's about. You'll see.' "'I think she does, and she'll never disobey her father.' "'But she's coming back to me.' Isabel added, and I must beg you to go away. Rosier lingered a moment, till Pansy came in sight on the arm of her cavalier. He stood just long enough to look her in the face. Then he walked away, holding up his head, and the manner in which he achieved this sacrifice to expediency convinced Isabel he was very much in love. Pansy, who seldom got disarranged in dancing, looking perfectly fresh and cool after this exercise, waited a moment, and then took back her bouquet. Isabel watched her, and saw she was counting the flowers. Whereupon she said to herself that decidedly there were deeper forces at play than she had recognized. Pansy had seen Rosier turn away, but she said nothing to Isabel about him. She talked only of her partner, after he had made his bow and retired, of the music, the floor, the rare misfortune of having already torn her dress. Isabel was sure, however, she had discovered her lover to have abstracted a flower, though this knowledge was not needed to account for the dutiful grace with which she responded to the appeal of her next partner. That perfect amenity under acute constraint was part of a larger system. She was again led forth by a flushed young man, this time carrying her bouquet, and she had not been absent many minutes when Isabel saw Lord Warburton advancing through the crowd. He presently drew near and bade her good evening. She had not seen him since the day before. He looked about him, and then— "'Where's the little maid?' he asked. It was in this manner that he had formed the harmless habit of alluding to Miss Osmond. "'She's dancing,' said Isabel. "'You'll see her somewhere.' He looked among the dancers, and at last caught Pansy's eye. "'She sees me, but she won't notice me.' he then remarked. "'Are you not dancing?' "'As you see, I'm a wallflower.' "'Won't you dance with me?' "'Thank you. I'd rather you should dance with the little maid.' "'One needn't prevent the other, especially as she's engaged.' "'She's not engaged for everything, and you can reserve yourself. She dances very hard, and you'll be the fresher.' "'She dances beautifully,' said Lord Warburton, following her with his eyes. "'Ah, at last,' he added, "'she has given me a smile.' He stood there with his handsome, easy, important physiognomy, and as Isabel observed him, it came over her, as it had done before, 
that it was strange a man of his mettle should take an interest in a little maid. It struck her as a great incongruity. Neither Pansy's small fascinations, nor his own kindness, his good nature, not even his need for amusement, which was extreme and constant, were sufficient to account for it. "'I should like to dance with you,' he went on in a moment, turning back to Isabel. "'But I think I like even better to talk with you.' "'Yes, it's better, and it's more worthy of your dignity. Great statesmen oughtn't to waltz.' "'Don't be cruel. Why did you recommend me, then, to dance with Miss Osmond?' "'Ah, oh, that's different. If you danced with her it would look simply like a piece of kindness, as if you were doing it for her amusement. If you dance with me, you'll look as if you were doing it for your own.' "'And pray, haven't I a right to amuse myself?' "'No, not with the affairs of the British Empire on your hands.' "'The British Empire be hanged. You're always laughing at it.' "'Amuse yourself with talking to me,' said Isabel. "'I'm not sure it's really a recreation. You're too pointed. I've always to be defending myself. And you strike me as more than usually dangerous to-night. Will you absolutely not dance?' "'I can't leave my place. Pansy must find me here.' He was silent a little. "'You're wonderfully good to her,' he said suddenly. Isabel stared a little and smiled. Can you imagine one's not being? No, indeed. I know how one is charmed with her. But you must have done a good deal for her. I've taken her out with me, said Isabel, smiling still. And I've seen that she has proper clothes. Your society must have been a great benefit to her. You've talked to her, advised her, helped her to develop. Ah, yes. If she isn't the rose, she has lived near it. She laughed and her companion did as much. But there was a certain visible preoccupation in his face which interfered with complete hilarity. "'We all try to live as near it as we can,' he said, after a moment's hesitation. Isabel turned away. Pansy was about to be restored to her, and she welcomed the diversion. We know how much she liked Lord Warburton. She thought him pleasanter even than the sum of his merits warranted, there was something in his friendship that appeared a kind of resource in case of indefinite need. It was like having a large balance at the bank. She felt happier when he was in the room. There was something reassuring in his approach. The sound of his voice reminded her of the beneficence of nature. Yet for all that it didn't suit her that he should be too near her, that he should take too much of her goodwill for granted. She was afraid of that. She averted herself from it. She wished he wouldn't. She felt that if he should come too near, as it were, it might be in her to flash out and bid him keep his distance. Pansy came back to Isabel with another rent in her skirt, which was the inevitable consequence of the first, and which she displayed to Isabel with serious eyes. There were too many gentlemen in uniform. They wore those dreadful spurs, which were fatal to the dresses of little maids. It hereupon became apparent that the resources of women are innumerable. Isabel devoted herself to Pansy's desecrated drapery. She fumbled for a pin and repaired the injury. She smiled and listened to her account of her adventures. Her attention, her sympathy were immediate and active, and they were in direct proportion to a sentiment with which they were in no way connected. 
a lively conjecture as to whether lord warburton might be trying to make love to her it was not simply his words just then it was others as well it was the reference and the continuity this was what she thought about while she pinned up pansy's dress if it were so as she feared he was of course unwitting he himself had not taken account of his intention but this made it none the more auspicious made the situation none less impossible the sooner he should get back into right relations with things the better he immediately began to talk to pansy on whom it was certainly mystifying to see that he dropped a smile of chastened devotion pansy replied as usual with a little air of conscientious aspiration he had to bend down toward her a good deal in conversation and her eyes as usual wandered up and down his robust person as if he had offered it to her for exhibition she always seemed a little frightened yet her fright was not of the painful character that suggests dislike on the contrary she looked as if she knew that he knew she liked him isabel left them together a little and wandered toward a friend whom she saw near and with whom she talked till the music of the following dance began for which she knew pansy to be also engaged the girl joined her presently with a little fluttered flush and isabel who scrupulously took osmond's view of his daughter's complete dependence consigned her as a precious and momentary loan to her appointed partner about all this matter she had her own imaginations her own reserves there were moments when pansy's extreme adhesiveness made each of them to her sense look foolish but osmond had given her a sort of tableau of her position as his daughter's duenna which consisted of gracious alternations of concession and contraction and there were directions of his which she liked to think she obeyed to the letter perhaps as regards some of them it was because her doing so appeared to reduce them to the absurd after pansy had been led away she found lord warburton drawing near her again she rested her eyes on him steadily she wished she could sound his thoughts but he had no appearance of confusion she has promised to dance with me later he said i'm glad of that i suppose you've engaged her for the cotillion at this he looked a little awkward no i didn't ask her for that it's a quadrille oh, you're not clever said isabel almost angrily i told her to keep the cotillion in case you should ask for it poor little maid fancy that and lord warburton laughed frankly of course i will if you like if i like oh if you dance with her only because i like it i'm afraid i bore her she seems to have a lot of young fellows on her book isabel dropped her eyes reflecting rapidly lord warburton stood there looking at her and she felt his eyes on her face she felt much inclined to ask him to remove them she didn't do so however she only said to him after a minute with her own raised please let me understand understand what you told me ten days ago that you'd like to marry my stepdaughter you've not forgotten it forgotten it i wrote to mr osmond about it this morning ah said isabel he didn't mention to me that he had heard from you lord warburton stammered a little i-i didn't send my letter perhaps you forgot that no i wasn't satisfied with it it's an awkward sort of letter to write you know but i shall send it to-night 
At three o'clock in the morning? I mean later in the course of the day. Very good. You still wish, then, to marry her? Very much indeed. Aren't you afraid that you'll bore her? And as her companion stared at this enquiry, Isabel added, If she can't dance with you for half an hour, how will she be able to dance with you for life? Ah, said Lord Warburton readily, I'll let her dance with other people. About the cotillion, the fact is I thought that you— That you— That I would do it with you? I told you I'd do nothing. Exactly. So that while it's going on, I might find some quiet corner where we may sit down and talk. Oh, said Isabel gravely, you are much too considerate of me. When the cotillion came, Pansy was found to have engaged herself, thinking, in perfect humility, that Lord Warburton had no intentions. Isabel recommended him to seek another partner, but he assured her that he would dance with no one but herself. As, however, she had, in spite of the remonstrances of her hostess, declined other invitations on the ground that she was not dancing at all, it was not possible for her to make an exception in Lord Warburton's favour. "'After all, I don't care to dance,' he said. "'It's a barbarous amusement. I'd much rather talk.' And he intimated that he had discovered exactly the corner he had been looking for, a quiet nook in one of the smaller rooms, where the music would come to them faintly, and not interfere with conversation. Isabel had decided to let him carry out his idea. She wished to be satisfied. She wandered away from the ballroom with him, though she knew her husband desired she should not lose sight of his daughter. It was with his daughter's pretendant, however, that would make it right for Osmond. On her way out of the ballroom, she came upon Edward Rosier, who was standing in a doorway with folded arms, looking at the dance in the attitude of a young man without illusions. She stopped a moment, and asked him if he were not dancing. "'Certainly not, if I can't dance with her,' he answered. "'You had better go away, then,' said Isabel, with the manner of good counsel. "'I shall not go till she does,' and he let Lord Warburton pass, without giving him a look. This nobleman, however, had noticed the melancholy youth, and he asked Isabel who her dismal friend was, remarking that he had seen him somewhere before. "'It's the young man I've told you about, who's in love with Pansy.' "'Ah, yes, I remember. He looks rather bad.' "'He has reason. My husband won't listen to him.' "'What's the matter with him?' Lord Warburton inquired. "'He seems very harmless.' "'He hasn't money enough, and he isn't very clever.' Lord Warburton listened with interest. He seemed struck with this account of Edward Rosier. "'Dear me! He looked a well-set-up young fellow.' "'So he is, but my husband's very particular.' "'Oh, I see.' And Lord Warburton paused a moment. "'How much money has he got?' He then ventured to ask. "'Some forty thousand francs a year.' Sixteen hundred pounds?' Ah, but that's very good, you know. So I think. My husband, however, has larger ideas. Yes, I've noticed that your husband has very large ideas. Is he really an idiot, the young man? An idiot? Not in the least. He's charming. When he was twelve years old, I myself was in love with him. He doesn't look much more than twelve today, Lord Warburton rejoined vaguely, 
looking about him. Then, with more point, "'Don't you think we might sit here?' he asked. "'Wherever you please.' The room was a sort of boudoir, pervaded by a subdued, rose-coloured light. A lady and gentleman moved out of it as our friends came in. "'It's very kind of you to take such an interest in Mr. Rosier,' Isabel said. "'He seems to me rather ill-treated. He had a face a yard long. I wondered what ailed him.' "'You are a just man,' said Isabel. "'You've a kind thought even for a rival.' Lord Warburton suddenly turned with a stare. "'A rival? Do you call him my rival?' "'Surely, if you both wish to marry the same person.' "'Yes, but since he has no chance.' "'I like you, however that may be, for putting yourself in his place. It shows imagination.' "'You like me for it?' And Lord Warburton looked at her with an uncertain eye. "'I think you mean you're laughing at me for it.' "'Yes, I'm laughing at you a little. But I like you as somebody to laugh at.' "'Ah, well then, let me enter into his situation a little more.' What do you suppose one could do for him? Since I have been praising your imagination, I'll leave you to imagine that yourself, Isabel said. Pansy, too, would like you for that. Miss Osmond? Ah, she, I flatter myself, likes me already. Very much, I think. He waited a little. He was still questioning her face. Well, then, I don't understand you. You don't mean that she cares for him? A quick blush sprang to his brow. "'You told me she would have no wish apart from her father's, and as I've gathered that he would favour me.' He paused a little, and then suggested, "'Don't you see?' through his blush. "'Yes, I told you she has an immense wish to please her father, and that it would probably take her very far.' "'That seems to me a very proper feeling,' said Lord Warburton. "'Certainly.' It's a very proper feeling. Isabel remained silent for some moments. The room continued empty. The sound of the music reached them with its richness softened by the interposing apartments. Then at last she said, But it hardly strikes me as the sort of feeling to which a man would like to be indebted for a wife. I don't know. If the wife's a good one, and he thinks she does well. Yes, of course, you must think that. I do. I can't help it. You call that very British, of course. No, I don't. I think Pansy would do wonderfully well to marry you, and I don't know who should know it better than you. But you're not in love. Ah, yes, I am, Mrs. Osmond. Isabel shook her head. You like to think you are while you sit here with me, but that's not how you strike me. I'm not like the young man in the doorway. I admit that. But what makes it so unnatural? Could anyone in the world be more lovable than Miss Osmond? No one, possibly. But love has nothing to do with good reasons. I don't agree with you. I'm delighted to have good reasons. Of course you are. If you were really in love, you wouldn't care a straw for them. Ah, really in love, really in love, Lord Warburton exclaimed, folding his arms, leaning back his head and stretching himself a little. "'You must remember that I'm forty-two years old. I won't pretend I'm as I once was.' "'Well, if you're sure,' said Isabel, 
it's all right. He answered nothing. He sat there with his head back looking before him. Abruptly, however, he changed his position. He turned quickly to his friend. Why are you so unwilling, so sceptical? She met his eyes, and for a moment they looked straight at each other. If she wished to be satisfied, she saw something that satisfied her. She saw in his expression the gleam of an idea that she was uneasy on her own account, that she was perhaps even in fear. It showed a suspicion, not a hope, but such as it was it told her what she wanted to know. Not for an instant should he suspect her of detecting in his proposal of marrying her stepdaughter an implication of increased nearness to herself, or of thinking it, on such a betrayal, ominous. In that brief, extremely personal gaze, however, deeper meanings passed between them than they were conscious of at the moment. "'My dear Lord Warburton,' she said, smiling, "'you may do, so far as I'm concerned, whatever comes into your head.' And with this she got up and wandered in the adjoining room, where, within her companion's view, she was immediately addressed by a pair of gentlemen, high personages in the Roman world, who met her as if they had been looking for her. While she talked with them she found herself regretting she had moved. It looked a little like running away, all the more as Lord Warburton didn't follow her. She was glad of this, however, and at any rate she was satisfied. She was so well satisfied that when, in passing back into the ballroom, she found Edward Rosier still planted in the doorway, she stopped and spoke to him again. "'You did right not to go away.' I've some comfort for you. I need it, the young man softly wailed, when I see you so awfully thick with him. Don't speak of him. I'll do what I can for you. I'm afraid it won't be much, but what I can, I'll do. He looked at her with gloomy obliqueness. What has suddenly brought you round? The sense that you are an inconvenience in doorways, she answered, smiling as she passed him. Half an hour later she took leave, with Pansy, and at the foot of the staircase the two ladies, with many other departing guests, waited a while for their carriage. Just as it approached, Lord Warburton came out of the house and assisted them to reach their vehicle. He stood a moment at the door, asking Pansy if she had amused herself, and she, having answered him, fell back with a little air of fatigue. Then Isabel at the window, detaining him by a movement of her finger, murmured gently, "'Don't forget to send your letter to her father.'" End of chapter 43「Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.